Principles of Economics, my complete guide to understanding economics, is now available in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook from SafeAdeen.com, Amazon, and many more booksellers worldwide. And now, I am also teaching a course based on this book on my website, SafeAdeen.com. Principles of Economics will run the whole academic year, from September to June, and will have a new lecture every two weeks, as well as weekly live online discussion seminars open to learners from all over the world and from all walks of life. Whether you're a student, a professional, or a retiree, you are making economic decisions every day, and this course will arm you with the wisdom of centuries of economists to improve your economic decision-making. You'll also get a free book of Principles of Economics if you sign up for the course. Go to safeaddeen.com and sign up now. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by Orange Pill App, the Bitcoin-only social network that connects you with high-signal Bitcoiners, events, and now merchants as well. If you're like me and can't stop talking about Bitcoin, you know how challenging it can be to talk to the no-coiners and how nice it is to talk to someone who gets you. With the Orange Pill app, you can find the Bitcoiners near you and they can replace the no-coiners in your life. You can organize events and meetups with local Bitcoiners and wherever you travel, you can meet up with local Bitcoiners all while being as anonymous as you like. So if you want to build your local network of Bitcoiners, find a Bitcoin meetup or merchants accepting Bitcoin, head over to orangepillapp.com to sign up or download the app from the App Store or Google Play Store and send me a DM so we can get connected. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by CoinKite. CoinKite are my favorite makers of Bitcoin hardware. They produce the legendary Open Dime, the first Bitcoin bearer asset, as well as the reliable cold card hardware wallet, the excellent stainless steel seed plates for storing your seed phrases, and the block clock. Now, CoinKite have produced the SATS card, a card the size of a credit card which can store Bitcoin and works great as a gift. CoinKite have just produced a limited edition gorgeous Bitcoin Standard SATS card, which carries the Bitcoin Standard logo, and you can get it from coinkite.shop slash Bitcoin Standard. Use the code Bitcoin Standard to get 5% off your purchase. This podcast is also brought to you by the Bitcoin Way, your professional Bitcoin IT team offering you personalized, secure, and comprehensive solutions for every step along your Bitcoin journey. The Bitcoin Way offer live concierge service to guide you with your Bitcoin cold storage, running your node, privacy best practices, inheritance planning, corporate strategy, and multi-sig solutions. They don't touch your coins, they guide you through the process of acquiring your coins and securing them. If you'd like to make your setup safer and more reliable, book a consult with them and see what they have to suggest. If you want to give someone the gift of Bitcoin, get them this professional service that will ensure they start off knowing exactly how to manage their coins and not lose them. Go to thebitcoinway.com and start Bitcoining more confidently. Hello and welcome to the Bitcoin Standard Podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Malcolm Kendrick. Dr. Malcolm Kendrick is a Scottish doctor, author, speaker, and skeptic. He's the author of The Great Cholesterol Con from 2007, Doctoring Data from 2015, and the more recent The Clot Thickens, The Enduring Mystery of Heart Disease, published in 2021. His blog, drmalcolmkendrick.org, explores the meaning behind misleading healthcare headlines. He joins us today for a discussion of his work on cholesterol and heart disease. This is, of course, a very prominent topic in scientific circles. Dr. Kendrick holds opinions that are not 
exactly congruent with the mainstream views that you might get on your uh, TV and newspaper. And that is, of course, why we're having him here, because we're always looking for these different ways of interpreting the world from what the fiat authorities have told us. So, Dr. Kendrick, thank you so much for joining us today. No problem. Nice to be here. Let's just begin with the main thesis of your book, The Great Cholesterol Con. I mean, cholesterol is something that everybody in the world knows is dangerous. It's For me, it's, it's astounding how I travel all over the world and pretty much everywhere you go, the one thing that people are concerned about when it comes to their health is cholesterol. You know, people will be eating the most uh, highly processed obesogenic food out there without any care. You know, they'll be drinking liters of uh, soda every day. But when it comes to fatty food, they'll tell you, oh, no, I got to watch my cholesterol. And you've written a book that says the cholesterol hypothesis is largely a con. Why is that the case? Well, why have I written the book or why is it a con? I wrote the book because I suppose I felt I had to to do something. One thing that you become aware of quite quickly is that if you start trying to write clinical studies and papers that go against the mainstream, it's incredibly difficult to get them published. I have been involved in a few, but the rejections are like an avalanche and the, the, uh, the approvals are the occasional drip because you send papers to peer reviewers and the peer reviewers all believe in the theory and they just say, well, this must be nonsense. So, so it is very hard to get scientific papers published, although I have had one or two. And so I thought, well, I'll write a book about this and see if that has any effect on, on the world because that's one way of communicating. Nobody can edit you. And, and so long as you get it published, it's at least it's out there. So, so that was the, the rationale for, for writing the book anyway. No, I definitely can relate to that. And I think similar experience in economics, part of the reason that I find myself so uh, perceptive to these uh, heretic ideas like yours is because of my background in economics. It's practically impossible to get published in high-ranking important journals in economics if you question the inflationist logic of central banks which finance those journals. And so that's why I ended up just writing my book independently and published it and found that because it was just a book that was out there, people could read it and they could get access to the ideas much more than they could if we'd been uh, looking at journals. Yeah, well, I think that's true in, in all fields. Uh, years ago, I spoke to a scientist called Thomas Gold, who you probably never heard of. He's now died. He must have died 20 years ago. But he was um, he was one of the first geologists in the United States to, to be um, a supporter of tectonic plate movement theory. At the time, that was considered heresy in the world of geology. Apparently, he used to go to, he used to, go to conferences and wave banners around saying, we believe in tectonic movement, at which point you got thrown out of all the meetings and you couldn't get anything published. It's the same in all fields. I think it's probably more important or more corrosive in, in medical research because the amounts of money that can be made from promoting drugs that do certain things like lowering your cholesterol make billions and billions and billions. And the food manufacturing companies that make foods that theoretically lower your cholesterol make more billions and billions and billions. So if you stick your poker stick into that particular hornet's nest, they come up and they sting you because there's an awful lot of money to be lost. Huge, vast sums of money. So entire reputations are made. You become an expert in cardiovascular disease if you support these ideas. You get funding for your research. You get your papers published in the big journals because 
that's how it goes. So it's there's a gigantic kind of industry out there who who are really trying to stop you. That's probably not so much of the case in, I mean, in economics, yes, but 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 people don't become hugely rich by saying I believe in Keynesian economics rather than whatever. Oh yes, they um, do. Well, do they? All right. Well, I I I, I defer to you. <laughs> Superior knowledge. No, I mean, in economics. I think we're like an order of scale larger because you know, in your case, it's, uh, yeah, pharmaceutical companies make a few billion dollars. In this case, you know, you're talking about governments and banks making trillions of dollars uh, from from promoting these Keynesian ideas. But yeah, uh, <laughs> strike strike my previous comment from the record. <laughs> <laughs> but it is apart from the monetary things. There's also reputations at stake. There's people who've built their entire careers on supporting our point of view. It's extraordinarily difficult for anyone to say, uh, you know what, I've thought about this and I think I've been wrong for the last 40 years and I think you're right. So so I'm going to change my mind on this. Uh, words that one doesn't really tend to hear in, in, uh, in the world very much. Um, so, so I think, it, yes, I mean, you are up against a, a huge thing, whatever that thing is a huge blob of inertia as much as anything else. So we say, yes, not an easy place to be. I think that uh, skeptics, if that's the correct word, from different areas do tend to find each other and seek each other out of it because it's like, well, I've had exactly the same problem in my field. This is what happens in my field. You, you know, I'm sure it's been the same throughout history, although I fear that uh, maybe 100 years ago or, or maybe even more recently, different countries might have had different ideas. So the Germans might have had a different idea than the Russians had a different idea than the United States had a different idea than whatever. Where the, the problem with the, if you like, the, the, the way things have gone, the glo- the globalization of ideas, is that these ideas have sort of taken over everywhere. There isn't a country where people, there's, there's not an Austrian economic group anymore. There's just a big blob of people who all go around to the same conferences and agree with each other and pat each other on the back and back and fund each other. And my my belief is it's far more difficult today than it ever was to go against the the accepted ideas in any field. I don't know how one would ever prove that, but I believe it to be true. You know? No, I, I agree with you entirely. In my second book, The Fiat Standard, I make the case that fiat money is at the root of this dysfunction. I think throughout history, you know, we know all these examples of scientists who came up with ideas and they were ridiculed and they were fought. And, uh, you know, many times it took many decades or centuries for their ideas to be vindicated. So this isn't by any means a unique 20th century phenomenon. But what I think is unique about the 20th century and the invention of fiat money is that it makes it possible for institutions to be lo- to be wrong for a very long time. And, and there's no corrective mechanism because there's no market test. So in a free market where you and everybody else is able to preach and practice whatever they want, you know, you can come up with a theory that says uh, cholesterol is bad. Somebody comes up with a theory that says cholesterol is good. Hospitals are free to experiment with this. People are free to choose which hospital they want to go to, which nutritionist they want to go to. Over time, you're going to see that uh, the people who choose the theories that work better with reality will do better and they'll be better off. And the people who teach those ideas will benefit from that. So more and more hospitals will adopt the theories that work. If we had a free market in ideas and a free market in those things. But in the 20th century, because of fiat money, in my opinion, the funding mechanism is no longer based upon the client. 
it is top-down funding from the money printer. And the money printer as well also decides by regulation who gets to be a scientist, as you said. So it's, it's a much more elaborate straitjacket for science and for groupthink in that, you know, you look at the example of in health, you see these and then you see it in, in all these other fields. You cannot become a doctor. You know, you lose your license if you tell people. We saw, for instance, uh, what happened to Dr. Professor Tim Noakes in South Africa. We see so many professors that and, and doctors who lose their licenses for preaching something that works very well for clients. You know, the, the, the reason I think this can survive is that the money printer prevents economic reality from imposing itself. It continues to overrule economic reality. And that's why I, I, I love the term you use in your uh, book, an endlessly adaptable hypothesis, which is another way of saying it's really not scientific. It's just a make-up, made-up excuse. So they have the conclusion, and the conclusion is you need to take the statins, and then they'll just adapt the hypothesis with whatever is needed in order to arrive at that conclusion. And they can do that because there's no market competition in a sense. There's, there's no alternative hospital system that's saying, you know what, we're not going to go ahead with this. You can't get licensed as a hospital. You can't get licensed as a nutritionist or as a dietitian or as a doctor unless you tow the party line, in fact. The syllabus for my new online economics course, Principles of Economics, is now available on safedean.com. The course will take place over 18 lectures, each based on one chapter from my new book, Principles of Economics, which will be available for free as an ebook for everyone registering for the course. Lectures will be released once every two weeks on Mondays, starting on the 25th of September, 2023, and will be available in video and audio format. Live discussion seminars will be held once a week on Thursdays at alternating time slots, 12 hours apart, to ensure learners can attend from all over the world. I'm happy to announce that I have set up my new publishing house and online bookstore, The Safe House, which will be publishing and delivering the best Bitcoin and Austrian economics books worldwide in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. Go to thesafehouse.com to buy my latest book, Principles of Economics, as well as the Fiat Standard and the Bitcoin Standard. And now I'm also publishing Fiat Food, Matthew Lishak's amazing investigation into how inflation ruined our diet and health. And I'm also publishing Lynn Alden's Broken Money, her masterful exploration of the failures of the global financial system and how Bitcoin fixes it. This is a Bitcoiner's bookshop, so the books are printed in beautiful cloth hardcover made to last with a nice colored dust jacket on top. Go to thesafehouse.com and get yours now. Oh, yeah, I mean, that's absolutely true. You know, there's others, of course, um, what you're maybe not aware of who've challenged and questioned more the diet heart part of the hypothesis. Gary Fetka is an orthopedic surgeon in Australia who's taken to the Australian whatever it's called board and basically told never ever talk about this ever again or you will no longer be able to practice medicine in brackets at the end even if it proves that you were right. So I mean the ridiculousness of it I think is is, is sort of it, it would be funny if it wasn't so serious. And um, I think, it, unfortunately, uh, what's the quote? You can ignore reality for as long as you want, but you can't ignore the consequences of ignoring reality. And I think that, uh, in you know, I've recently been looking at statistics of life expectancy, particularly in the United States, but also in the UK, where 
you know, we are seeing a reduction in life expectancy. It's not huge, but it's there and it's relatively significant. And people are rushing about trying to come up with explanations as to why this might be. You know, with all these preventive medicines like statins and blood pressure lowering medications and all these things that everyone is now virtually commanded to take worked, we would be expecting some increase in life expectancy. You would hope it may not be huge. And in fact, I was part of the British Medical Association committees when they introduced the system into the United Kingdom, which you've never heard of and almost no, and no one's heard of. It's called the Quality Outcome Framework, whereby you, you there's a certain number of points to be gathered, 1,150 points or whatever, for doing certain things like taking people's blood pressure, lowering their blood pressure, measuring their weight, making sure their blood sugar levels are under control, including cholesterol and lowering cholesterol. Which led to really an explosion in polypharmacy, polypharmacy being obviously taking more than one or several medications at the same time. Now, each of these medications had an evidence base of sorts to support it. But of course, no one's ever, no one's ever done a, a study on, is it better to take seven medications than six? Is it better to take six than five or eight than seven? My prediction at the time was that we would see a reduction in life expectancy because the combination of all these medicines being given to people simultaneously would, would cause greater problems than it could ever, ever solve. Now we're seeing life expectancy going down, but of course no one, no one is, is, is looking at the possibility that it might be because of what we're doing. The medical interventions that we're doing might have a role to play in this. I can't say it for certain. However, I did predict it, it has happened. And, and studies on people taking multiple medications where they've tried to reduce or take off as many medications as they can have shown quite dramatic improvements in life expectancy. But again, these are small-scale studies. They're never followed up. It's because, well, well, we know why they are not followed up. Because then you'd have to turn around and say, you know what, all this stuff about monitoring and measuring and treating and treating and treating and more and more and more drugs being given is having the exact opposite effect to that which we we wished it to and again uh, you caught yourself in a way back at you this is not an acceptable thing to look at so no one looks at it and yet it's incredibly important i mean across the world at the moment we're seeing an increase in overall mortality rates in many many countries which can't be explained and yet these things have to be explained and the only way you can possibly explain them is to look at things you don't necessarily want to look at but we are just people are just hiding from what could be causing this? Let's look at everything. Now, there are certain things you can look at, and there are an awful lot of things you are not allowed to look at. You're not even allowed to suggest that we should look at them, because to suggest that we could look at them suggests these things may be a problem. You know, it, it is. I don't want to get into. I don't want to get into action, but I'm extremely concerned that 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 we're not looking at this at all at the moment, and yet there is. It should be looked at, if only to dismiss it as a possibility of causing harm. And, you know, the explanations of, well, it can't possibly be causing harm, so we're not looking at it. It becomes very, well, it's anti-science, isn't it? It's just, it's not scientific at all. Exactly. There are certain issues we can't look at, we won't look at, and you're not allowed to look at them. In fact, you're not even allowed to mention them as possibilities. I mean, that's the exact opposite of, of, of science, which is where I find myself getting rather worked up at people yeah, go back to cholesterol i mean what did i do I, I i lived in scotland i was brought up in scotland scotland had the highest rate of heart disease in the world when i was at, met, was at university 
So obviously it was quite an interesting issue to look at. And the idea was that the Scots ate a terrible diet. This caused their cholesterol to go up, and that was what was causing them to have this high rate. Well, I, I happened to go to France quite a lot. And one, one thing I noticed about France was they certainly don't hang back on eating saturated fat. And in fact, they have the highest consumption of saturated fat in Europe at um, 15 point, well, last time I looked, and it's very difficult to get these statistics now, 15.5% of all the calories that they consumed in France were, were from sat consuming saturated fat. And yet their rate of heart disease was a fifth to a sixth of that in Scotland. So once you see a fact like that, you think, well, yeah, hard to see that it's having an effect. And once you start questioning, you start looking into it more deeply. And then you have to ask the question, well, you know, I, I, the last time that they actually provided these figures was about the year 2008, where the, where, the, where the top five countries in Europe with saturated fat consumption were, if I can get this right off the top of my head, France, Switzerland, Spain, the UK, and somewhere else I can't remember the name of, uh, with an average intake of about 13%. And if you looked at the five countries that at the lowest consumption of saturated fat, which was actually at the time the Ukraine, Moldova, Russia, um, somewhere else and somewhere else. The, the difference in heart disease rates was that the countries that ate the most saturated fat had five times less or five times fewer heart disease deaths than the ones that ate the lowest amount of saturated fat. So if there was any correlation, it was the exact opposite way around and in a, in a very significant manner to what we were told. So once you start reading this and then you start looking into the mechanisms and the science, you realize this is just doesn't work. It's not a hypothesis that works. And yet, and yet people believe it more strongly than they ever have done. I mean, facts like, you know, we hear about eating five portions of fruit and vegetables is healthy for you. Now, if you spoke to most people, they would absolutely tell you that this is an absolute fact. I remember once a few of us went and tried to find out you know, where, where, where is the evidence for this come from? And the, the answer is there was never a study, never, ever, any study on this ever done anywhere, ever. There is no evidence to support it. And yet it is almost a fact. I don't know what it's like in other countries, but in the UK, this is a fact. And, and you can't argue against it. And they go, well, you can't. That's just, just everybody knows this. Go, I realize that everybody knows it. I know everybody knows this fact. But what I'll do is I'll, I'll challenge you. I'll give you a million pounds. Come up with a study. Find me the study from which this fact emerged. And you will find you can't find it because it doesn't exist. And believe me, lots of us have looked for it and failed. So, I mean, the astonishing thing is how, how vehemently people support things that they know to be true that just aren't even remotely true. And, it, and the problem is, of course, I mean, how do you argue against somebody's deeply held belief when their belief is based on nothing at all other than what somebody told them once and and um i don't know why humans are so what the word is gullible they, once they've got it stuck in there you know i think you know the, the key is that it's not told once i i think i heard this somewhere that you, you need to repeat something to somebody seven times and then it just sticks and they take it as being true and so the way that uh, propaganda works is just continuous repetition so people just believe you know five rations of fruits and vegetables have to be true that fat is, uh, is bad for you saturated fat is bad for you co2 emissions are boiling the oceans you you hear these seven times on the bbc and then 
everybody knows. And for me, whenever I hear the term everybody knows, that's a red flag. You know, if, oh, yeah, yeah. if, some, if, if somebody has to, you know, if it was true that they'll tell you, you know, you should do this because of that, because I read it here and I read it there and this is the evidence for it. it when, when you know something that's true, you can explain why you know it. But if you resort to the mental crutch of everybody knows, then it's just propaganda that you read on TV, uh, that you heard on TV in general. And, and I agree with you. This is why, you know, in, in, in the fiat standard, my chapter on science is called fiat science. And I think the term fiat science is, is very appropriate because on the one hand, it's not just that it's financed by fiat money and that it's, you know, all of these institutions that promote this science are heavily dependent on inflation and government subsidies in order to continue to produce this stuff, but also because the money the fact that the money comes from above means that the science is not open for questioning. It's not open for the scientific method. It's not open for experimentation. It's just handed down to us by fiat. You know, government agencies and universities and the um, anointed experts have decided that you should eat five fruits and vegetables in a day. And then that's it. That's it by fiat. You know, it's by decree. That's what the word fiat means. And that's it. Like, you can't argue with that. Whether it's, uh, you know, uh, climate change, whether they tell you it's consensus, that's it. It's consensus. You can't argue. What kind of science is consensus? And whether it's diet and whether it's macroeconomics, you know, everybody knows, everybody agrees, all the experts agree, all your arguments are invalid. <laughs> that's it. That's all you need to know. Yeah. Well, you say David Attenborough said it, then it's absolutely true, you know, in our country. If he says it, you can't argue with it. Because David exactly. Attenborough is, is like the, the, the ultimate. I noticed you had trouble working out what to say when you said five fruit and vegetables, portions. Because it was my first comment. What is a portion of fruit and vegetables? Is it is it five watermelons or five grapes? You know, and then no one can tell you. At the moment, you can't get an answer to think a, a very basic question like, what's a portion? You know, you, people are just talking utter nonsense. You know, when someone say, well, it's, it's 27 grams of this and it. You know, and the other thing that always amuses me is when people come up with a round figure, because when it comes to cholesterol, it's like if your cholesterol is greater than five, it's dangerous. That used to be the case. It's now gone down. But, um, but of course, in America, they use different units, uh, milligrams per deciliter rather than millimoles per liter. So in America, it's anything above 200 milligrams per deciliter is dangerous. Well, there's a difference of 0.2 there. And within that 0.2, it's about 5% of the population of these countries so it's sort of don't move countries because your cholesterol is okay if you're in america but you come to britain you're going to have to be treated because we use a different unit of measurement than you do it's like with blood pressure you know it's always zeros it's 120 over 70 it's like if it was a true measurement if you really knew where that level was it would be 126.75 over 73.92 instead of oh it's 720 over 70 and it's like with bmis as well because i looked at body mass index stuff and um and where, where does the idea that obesity begins at a bit body mass index of 30 begin? Well, no one knows the answer to that either, but I think I do. And I read a World Health Organization document from about the year 2000, which is about 600 pages long. And when they come to saying, when do we decide to set these limits? It was um, the, the argument for a BMI of 30. The, comment, the only thing that was stated was, we looked at the inflection on the curve. And that was where it comes from. There's no absolute figure. There's no guaranteed figure. They used to have a thing called the, the ponderosity index, which was actually a different way of measuring body mass index. And that was different. And the Americans, US used to have a different 
BMI for obesity than they had in Europe. And then suddenly they decided we better all have the same, the same definition. And then they found that uh, populations in what they call from India and Pakistan, what we call South Asians, if their body mass is greater than about 25, they're obese. So actually being obese is not a, is a, is a movable feast. You can be obese with a body mass index of 25 and a half in, in uh, India, but you've got to have it over 30 in the, in the United Kingdom or, or, or United States. So when you start coming across this, as you say, it's an endlessly flexible thing. It's, it's endlessly flexed to meet some new piece of data that comes in, but they don't question the hypothesis. They just say the hypothesis is correct. It's just that we need to look at it in a different way. Yeah. And so when you look at, you look at cholesterol itself, of course, there's no such thing as cholesterol in the bloodstream that it's carried around in little spheres. When you find that they, they used to have a thing, well, they still do have a thing called total cholesterol, which of course includes all sorts of different lipoproteins. And, and then they found that some populations with high cholesterols were, were not having higher rates of heart disease. So they said, oh, it's because they've got a high level of good cholesterol. So we started splitting it into bad cholesterol and good cholesterol. It's like cholesterol is just a molecule it's exactly the same. Use it, utilizing terms of good and bad, we now have light and fluffy, bad cholesterol. We have good, bad cholesterol now, and we have, we have bad, good cholesterol. So we have cholesterol, good cholesterol, bad cholesterol, good, bad cholesterol, and good, bad, and bad, good cholesterol. So you have every possible version of cholesterol. And, and the, the one that was called good, high-density lipoprotein, they've recently found in many people having very high levels is bad for you. So instead of saying, well, that hypothesis is complete so, nonsense. Okay, so so, so, so I, I want to get into this in detail. But first, like, yeah, I, I just want to say the, the thing with hypotheses, what's amazing is as, as it is endlessly adaptable, there's just nothing that can't falsify it. And one of my favorite tricks that they pull off in fiat science is the idea of a paradox. So whenever you get a piece of data that clearly contradicts your theory, a scientist says, all right, you know, this thing falsifies that. You only need one sunrise from the west to falsify all of our views of astronomy you know if the sun rises from the west one day then everything that we know about astronomy is wrong you can't just say oh well that's a paradox why is it that on this monday it rose from the west no you have to investigate and you have to come up with a theory that fits all of these observations but as you said you know the french paradox is well known in uh, in, in nutrition so this falsifies everything we say but we're just going to call it a paradox and continue to believe what we want what we yeah. do right <laughs> i know well i always love it when, when if the scientific paper has an explanation of or for in its title you know it's a complete crock if you like. <laughs> It's just people saying, well, it's, it's basically trying to explain a paradox away, you know. Yeah. Why, why, why do the French have, have, you know, eat so much saturated fat and, and, and the lowest rate of heart disease measurable in Europe for the last 50 years? Well, at one time they had a time log lag hypothesis, which was that it all actually takes 50, 40 years of eating saturated fat for it to cause a problem. And the French haven't been eating as much saturated fat as, say, in England which is complete rubbish. But anyway, that, that paper was published in 2002. So now 20 years later, it's now 60 years. And how long have you got to eat saturated fat for before it's going to show some impact on heart disease? We've now had 60 years. When it's beyond the average lifespan of the human race, maybe you'll accept that it's got nothing to do with it at all, but, but they won't. They just move on. They just, they just say, oh, well, it's, it's other things. You, know, it, you can never, ever, ever get hold of them. 
and get them to admit any any you know any scientific hypothesis is about predictive ability. And if, if you can't predict what's going to happen even remotely with your hypothesis, it's wrong. And so the, the cholesterol hypothesis fails here, there, and and in fact everywhere. And some of the most ruthless promoters of the cholesterol hypothesis in the UK are the Oxford teams of researchers. We set up a thing called the UK Biobank, which you may or may not have heard of. The gathering data from my not everybody in Britain, but it's, it's hundreds of thousands and thousands of people. And from time to time, they look at this database that contains stuff from all over the country. And they looked at causes of cardiovascular disease. What, what were the most important triggers for mortality from cardiovascular disease? And they came up with a lot of smoking, surprise, surprise. Uh, high sugar level diabetes, surprise, surprise. Some of the usual suspects. But when they looked at cholesterol and the, 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 the impact of a one millimole per litre decrease or increase on your risk of cardiovascular disease. What they found was in this study that the risk of your cholesterol going up by one millimeter per one millimole per liter of cholesterol was one. Not even 0.99, not 1.01, it was one. In other words, it made absolutely no difference to your risk of dying of heart disease, having a higher cholesterol level. And, and the paper itself that this was published in didn't even mention this fact. The only way you could find this out was by looking into the tables and data that hardly anyone ever looks into. And yet, despite that, they still tell you that it's the most important single causal factor for heart disease. The, the, their own research has disproved their own hypothesis. And they don't, they don't even mention it. So they, they come up with other nonsense things called um, Mendelian randomization. I don't know if you've come across this as absolute. It's just a way of, we have an expression which I like to use called bullshit baffles brains. Mendelian randomization is the biggest load of bullshit ever because they can't find a gene that, that is actually associated with heart disease and never found one. They, they admit that there's no such thing. And yet they, they continue to say that Mendelian randomization proves X, Y, or Z. And, and the only reason they get away with it is no one understands what they're talking about. And unless you read the papers in incredible detail to find the fatal flaw, because the statistics is fine. So, you know, once, once you've made the assumptions that are incorrect, that they can't sustain, the statistical analysis works pretty well. But we now have a situation where you can be told that you have familial hypercholesterolemia, which is having a raised LDL bad cholesterol level. But you don't actually have to have a raised LDL level to be diagnosed with it because they can prove genetically that you've got it, even if you haven't got it. I mean, there is no end to the unbelievable ridiculousness of, of the ridiculousness. But you can't debate this stuff because if you try and sort of write a paper about it, it just gets rejected. If you try and pin these people down, you, you, won't, you can't have an argument with them, you know. If you simply try and ask the question of how is the genetics, how is it that the genetics are responsible when 100 years ago all of our ancestors didn't have those diseases and now everybody has those diseases. So how did those genes skip all of our ancestors and come and hit us now? But these, these explanations of genetics are, are just very popular because you can't argue with them. <laughs> you don't understand genes. Nobody knows how to get into the genes and play around with them. Somebody tells you, oh, yeah, you have a gene. Well, how do I know? So just it, it, it seems to work pretty well. All right, so what, what, what is cholesterol? Let's start from, from square one. What is cholesterol? 
Cholesterol is a is a is a chemical C25 H46 O23 I think it is. Cholesterol is the basis of of many steroid hormones in your body. It's, it's the, the the basic structure of it is is four hydrocarbon rings with with them. Um, with a chain attached to the end of it, which is a, which is a very common you'll use by the body for all sorts of things. Um, you'll find it, you can find it in animal foods, animal, if you eat um, uh, animals or whatever, if you're carnivore, you will eat a certain amount of cholesterol because it's part of all of our cells. Every cell contains quite a lot of cholesterol and it's present in, in our body, if you like, in, in various different functions. Our own liver manufactures about five grams of cholesterol each day because the body needs it for various important functions. It makes up the synapses in our brain. So the highest concentration of cholesterol in the body is actually in the nerve cells and the neurons and the, and the synapses in our brain. That's, that's one of its functions. It's really important in maintaining the, the structure of all cell membranes and allows them to function properly. It allows... Um, nerve impulses to be tra transported along the cells and, and essentially without it your brain doesn't work and they've proven that with animal experiments uh, it's also made into various hormones like testosterone and estrogen and progesterone and cortisol and whatever by the body and these these hormones all use the basic structure of cholesterol to work so it's it's not found in in plants because plants have a thing called a sterol or a stanol which is very very similar to cholesterol it has a different bending structure at the end of it, which gives cells in plants their more rigid structure. So a stanol or a sterol is, creates what they call a cell wall, and that's why cells in trees or whatever are quite hard or harder. So, so if you take a stanol or a sterol in things like benicol, you're absorbing that rather than cholesterol, which is why your cholesterol goes down. But what you're doing is you're putting a plant sterol into the place where cholesterol maybe should be. And there is some evidence that that is not a very good thing to do in humans because we're, we don't, we're, we're not designed to be full of stanols and sterols. We're designed to be full of cholesterol. Cholesterol is actually a stanol. It's just a sterol. It's just a different version of it. So the cholesterol molecule itself is this thing that has myriad functions in the human body. And the, the reason why we're worried about it is not, well, who knows for sure why we're worried about it is that the liver produces cholesterol. Cholesterol, like all fats, is insoluble in blood. So if it just was pushed out of the liver into the bloodstream, it would just clump together and get jammed up and it wouldn't work at all. It couldn't be transported. So you have to transport it around the body in a little lipid, what they call a protein lipid sphere for the lipoprotein, which takes cholesterol and fats, takes it out of the liver and transports it around the body where these things are dumped into various cells around the body that need them. And then it comes back to the liver. It goes out as a thing called VLDL, which is a triglyceride, a big lipoprotein. It shrinks down in size to become an LDL. And the LDL is then removed from the circulation by the liver. And the various parts of the LDL are, are remanufactured to make more what they call VLDLs. So there's a kind of circulation going on. VLDL made, made in the liver transports fat and cholesterol around the body, comes back to the to the liver where it's reabsorbed. A certain amount of cholesterol is also absorbed by cells that need it. So it's a kind of transportation system for fats and cholesterol that we're talking about. And the one that we're worried about, or, or the mainstream is worried about, is the LDL, the low-density lipoprotein. Essentially, they're called different densities because a very low-density lipoprotein is less dense, obviously, 
it becomes an intermediate density lipoprotein. It becomes an LDL, which is more dense. HDLs are the one that's high density lipoproteins are the ones that are theoretically take cholesterol back from various tissues where it's needed to take it back to the liver. That's a very simplistic way of looking at it. I'm trying to keep it simple. So, so it's the one that, the one that we're worried about. The one we call cholesterol or have called cholesterol is LDL, low density lipoprotein, and that's the one that uh, all the medications are designed to lower. So your statins lower that, and um, the new ones called incretins and whatever they lower it. And, and there's other things, new benpanoic acid, and everyone's been trying to lower it for years and years. The first cholesterol lowerers were things uh, called fibrates, which were horrible things that basically stopped you absorbing cholesterol and fat and it all went straight through instead. And there have been a few other ones that have sort of arrived and not done very much at all. Ezetimibe is another one. So there's, there's all these drugs that keep getting, getting thrown into the market to lower low-density lipoprotein. Not cholesterol. That's what's being lowered. Does that sort of make sense? Or, yeah. So that's that's the bad one that everybody is worried about. What what's the mechanism that the mainstream view suggests is implicated in the move from cholesterol to destroying your health? How, how does that work? Why is this thing that your body makes somehow deadly for you? Yeah. Well, it's uh, the the theory is that if you have a higher concentration, more of it is absorbed into your arteries. Goes into your arteries, where where it clumps together and gradually forms thickenings that narrow your arteries down, and eventually the arteries very narrow. The blood supply can't get through; it might jam up completely with a blood clot, and that's the that's the basic mechanism for a heart attack or a stroke. So LDL is higher; it, it gets absorbed into the artery wall, where it builds up into these what they call plaques, thickenings in your arteries, and that's the the, the, the underlying thing. I mean, I, I agree with the existence of atherosclerotic plaques and narrowing of arteries. That exists. The hypothesis really came about because when they first looked at atherosclerotic plaques many, many years ago, they found they had a lot of cholesterol in them. So they had a high concentration of cholesterol. So what people said is, well, where's the cholesterol coming from? Well, the answer is it must be coming from the bloodstream and therefore a raised level of cholesterol, although it is not cholesterol in the bloodstream, is causing the thickenings and narrowings because where else would the cholesterol have come from? How could it be there if it wasn't coming out of the bloodstream? So that was the, the reasoning that started it all off, if you like. From there, the whole thing has, has sort of sustained itself for the last God knows how many years. You can sort of see why you would, why people might arrive at this kind of conclusion, not necessarily nefarious. It's not like people are there out there deliberately lying. It's just that the way that they look at the world is that you want to establish a mechanism where you find one culprit that you can fix with a pill. That's just how the medical mind of the 20th century has functioned. And that's, I mean, that's been something that's been institutionalized into medicine throughout the 20th century. Primarily, I would say, if we look at the role that um, the Rockefellers and uh, the modern medical, they played with modern medical education at the beginning of the 20th century, the, the American foundations and uh, the American medical education, they moved toward the idea that, look, we've discovered these amazing chemicals, petroleum, essentially, and all of its deri derivative products, and we can make anything we want in whatever properties that we want from it. And so, therefore, we can fix all of diseases. And indeed, 
This has given us an, an astonishingly high number of medical products and uh, pills and so on that you can see why, you know, um, the, that engineering mindset that built the world's um, hydrocarbon infrastructure around petroleum, which truly transformed the world. And arguably, incidentally, you know, arguably, I, I believe it was a hydrocarbon infrastructure that gave us all of the improvements in global health primarily, not so much medicines, you know, the sanitation and the ability to heat our homes and to have hot drying water and all of those things. These were far more influential on our health probably than any one individual medicine. But if you had this massive success, you can see why you would project it onto the human body as well. So in the same way that we can design engineering systems to solve problems with sewage, we can solve problems with the human body. We figure out this is the thing. Then we figure out what chemical can take that thing down and then we do it. And it's, it's very easy to make that mistake when you come at the world from that kind of perspective. And the disaster is it's very difficult to snap out of that mistake because essentially the feedback mechanism of the real world, which is markets and prices and signals, you know, price signals that tell you whether what you're doing is good or bad, that's essentially undercut in this kind of uh, fiat top-down uh, world of medicine. So why would you say then this is wrong? What is your objection to this theory? Well, uh, first of all, um... You know, I, go, I like to go down to basics with things as I get down to the what's actually going to happen. I mean, the first question you've got to ask is, is, is why would LDL, an LDL molecule, out of all the things that are floating around in the blood, be the one that just happens to leak into the artery walls? There's millions of other molecules out there, many of which are much smaller. What's, what's unique about this? You know, there is no explanation for it. The other, the other one of the key problems that I started with looking at is, is this happens in arteries, which are, of course, the blood vessels want to come out of your heart, and you've got the big artery, and then the, the arteries split down like, like branches on a tree. The higher the pressure in these arteries is much higher. Then, then the blood turns itself around through capillaries and comes back to the heart through veins. You, you never get um, atherosclerotic plaques in veins. It doesn't exist. Yet the level of LDL is precisely the same. The blood vessel wall is precisely the same thing. So what's your mechanism that says it goes into arteries, but it doesn't go into veins? And you can say, ah, well, it, it, whatever mechanism you wish to propose, you could say, well, in your lungs, have a different, a separate blood supply, if you like. The, the blood comes back through your veins, arrives in the right side of your heart, gets pumped out of that side into your lungs, travels around your lungs, goes into the left side of your heart, and then gets pushed out under much higher pressure into the rest of your body. You, you never get atherosclerotic plaques in your lungs either. When I say never, there are one or two conditions where it, where it can happen, but it's very, very unusual. So you have to explain why does LDL leak through blood vessels in arteries, not in veins and not in the lungs? What, what is your mechanism of action? Now that can't be due to blood pressure. Blood pressure is not gonna be forcing anything through anywhere. And then you start looking at it in more detail. You say, well, you know, your, your arteries are lined with, if you like, endothelial cells, a bit like wall tiles, obviously more complicated than a wall tile. Well, you have to get the LDL through the wall tile into the artery wall. How does that happen? Well, there is no mechanism known by which this can happen. And if it could happen, it would happen in veins as well. And it would happen in the arteries and, and, and veins in your lungs. So what you're saying is there's some unique mechanism of action that happens in your arteries that doesn't happen anywhere else. 
that allows LDL to somehow or other get past what is a barrier and into the artery wall behind. So now you have to ask yourself the question, well, if that's happening in one artery, how can it, why is it not happening everywhere in all arteries? Why is it not going through all arteries the same? Why is it just in one or two points? And as you start questioning it, you say, well, there is no mechanism of action by which this can occur. It doesn't make any sense from, a, from any, any perspective. And when you start looking into it and start asking these questions, people can't answer this question. They pretend to be able to answer this question, but they can't answer these questions. And then you look more clearly and say, well, look at this cholesterol that's in these, these plaques. Where does it come from? And in fact, a number of researchers have said, well, it is, one, one place it certainly isn't coming from is LDL molecules because the cholesterol you find in, in plaques is actually free cholesterol that can form crystals. That is not what you find in LDL molecules. Now, I can't, I'm not going to go into every single one of these details, but every time you go down a route to say, well, what are we looking at? you find that it cannot be explained by this hypothesis. Equally, you know, we find that when people have, as people get older, having a lower cholesterol level means you're more likely to die from cardiovascular disease than having a higher LDL cholesterol level. Which is a bit like saying, well, if you smoke, you can cause lung cancer up to the age of 60, but after the age of 60, if you smoke, you get less lung cancer. That would make sense not. But they're saying the same thing with cholesterol, which is when up to the age of 60, having a high cholesterol level is associated with an increased risk, which is sort of a bit in some population. After 60 or 55 or whatever cut point exactly you look at, it doesn't exist as a, as a correlation. So, it's a paradox. Oh, well, it's a, it's a paradox. And every time you come up with these paradox, well, it's a paradox. This one has an explanation, which is that, that what happens is that when people are ill, their cholesterol level drops. So it's not the... It's not the, uh, the, the high cholesterol, low cholesterol that's a problem. It's the, it's the underlying disease. Now, no one's ever found those underlying diseases, and anyone any, ever looked at it, they have found this explanation doesn't work. However, you'll still hear this low cholesterol hypothesis, which was just made up in about the year 1998 by a guy called Stamler, to explain. So every, every time you find a paradox, someone will come up with an explanation. And, and in fact, it was called Popper, who, who, who first recognized what they call the ad hoc hypothesis. Here is something that is not fitted by your hypothesis. Oh, well, here's the explanation. So, and you can keep doing this. Really, you can keep doing this forever. The problem is at a certain point, your paradoxes start tripping over other paradoxes until they, they meet in the middle and you, you don't have an answer. But no one, no one wants to use that level of logic. So, you know, the, the concept is they thought they were looking at cholesterol in plaques, and they were. But actually within LDL, just to get slightly more scientific, LDL carries cholesterol as what they call a cholesterol ester. It's attached to a saturated fat. So cholesterol is not free. Chemically, it's bound to a, saturated, to a fatty acid. That makes a cholesterol ester. That's what LDL has within it. Now, that form of cholesterol attached to a fatty acid cannot cannot be free, what they call free cholesterol, and cannot make cholesterol crystals is what you quite often find in atherosclerotic plaques. The only place that free cholesterol in sufficient quantities to make cholesterol crystals exists is within the cell membranes of red blood cells, erythrocytes. And red blood cells, if you like, are also lipoproteins. They just have a really high concentration of free cholesterol in them because that allows them to shuttle oxygen and carbon dioxide 
very complicated, but that's the only place you're going to find this. So when you find cholesterol crystals, which you find in almost all plaques to some degree, the one place that cannot have come from is an LDL molecule. Where it must have come from is a red blood cell. So where do red blood cells, how do they get into the artery wall? No one says, well, if your red blood cell count is high, you get atherosclerosis. This isn't even a remotely accepted hypothesis. So you have to ask the question, how does a red blood cell get into the artery wall? And if you can answer that, then you're starting to move towards the true answers of what causes heart disease. And people just don't even look at this. It's like, oh, well, we find cholesterol crystals, but that's a later thing. And we get it's, it, it is like listening. <laughs> Whatever you find these contradictions, people just, they either just dismiss it or say, well, it happens in this other process that I can't explain to you, but we know it must happen because we know cholesterol causes heart disease. Therefore, whatever we find that doesn't support this is just wrong or can be explained in some other way, or I'm not going to talk to you anyway because you're wrong. You know, it, that's about the level of argument you get. But like your thing is, you know, as everybody knows, well, I would say the science is settled. That's my, that's my version. If anyone tells me the science is settled, they said, anyone who makes that statement, by definition, should remove themselves from ever calling themselves a scientist. Because if the science... Science is never settled. No one can ever settle it. It's always up for grabs. And some things might be a bit more certain than other things. But one thing I do know for sure is science ain't ever settled. So your, your comment, if everybody knows, mine is always the science is settled. And you get that one a lot about global warming, for instance. The science is settled. They said, right, you're not a scientist. So I'm not listening to you about anything scientific ever again. Go away. And yeah. so you accept that, that as, as Feynman said, Richard Feynman, you know, science, science is, is, the, is the knowledge that experts can be wrong. If you don't accept that experts can be wrong, if you don't think there can be any questioning, then, then, then we're doomed, no, we're done for, because then you're not allowed to question things because they just are accepted facts, and that's that, and there is, no, there is nothing you can do. So, you know, how do you start questioning it? I mean, uh, my latest book is called The Clock Thickens, and it goes through this in possibly too much detail for most people, but it, it does explain why and how the, the hypothesis uh, is wrong. Now, that wouldn't, I don't really care about whether hypotheses are right or wrong in a way in medicine because human biology has got so many variables kicking around. It is quite difficult to say that's an absolute contradiction or that's an absolute proof of anything. It is, it is complex. Is what happens is when you actually do the experiments themselves and say, well, do they fit the hypothesis? And the answer is, I mean, the other thing that supported the cholesterol hypothesis or the LDL hypothesis is that statins reduce LDL. They actually reduce cholesterol synthesis in the liver. They reduce cholesterol synthesis in the liver. They reduce the amount of cholesterol being shunted out by the liver because of that. The liver then has to draw more in and the LDL level falls because it needs more cholesterol to be coming back at it. And they do reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease by what I would consider a small amount. Now, this was considered absolute proof of the hypothesis. And in fact, people who were questioning the hypothesis in the early 80s um, gave in when the statin trials appeared to show benefit. I'm part of a group called the International Network of Cholesterol Skeptics. And we, we, you, know, you look at the data, you look at the data, and you say, well, there's, there's no evidence. No one's actually shown that the degree of LDL lowering is associated with the decrease in risk of cardiovascular disease. Just taking a statin reduces the risk of getting cardiovascular disease. However, just taking an aspirin reduces the risk of cardiovascular disease. That does nothing to your LDL. 
And there are many other drugs that reduce and can reduce your risk of cardiovascular disease without lowering your LDL. What just so happens is that statins have quite a significant effect on, on blood coagulation. It's a coincidental thing. It's what we call a pleiotropic effect. It's not something that they designed it to do, but it does it. Statins also lower blood pressure in part through the same mechanism. So they have, in fact, the last time I looked, I came across 43, what they call pleiotropic mechanisms of statins that could, and, and I believe do explain how they've shown some benefits because there's been plenty of other drugs that have lowered LDL to the same degree as statins and have had no impact on cardiovascular disease. The reason you have never heard of them is because obviously they didn't launch. There were drugs which were designed to increase HDL and lower LDL. They were called trapibs, or very torisotrapib and evisotrapib, and there's four of them. The latest one of them lowered LDL by about 40%, which is more than most statins. It raised HDL by 150%, which LDL being good cholesterol. So you're expected to see some pretty major benefits from this. Nothing happened at all. There was no impact on cardiovascular disease. Pharmaceutical companies spent about 15 billion researching these drugs. They all failed to show any benefit whatsoever. And then they all obviously at that point died a death. Now you don't hear of these because they didn't launch and no one made much noise about them. Surprise, surprise. But there are plenty of others that have lowered LDL and total cholesterol and have had no impact. These don't get talked about. So they contradict, as you say, it only takes the sun to rise in the, the wrong way around. I'm forgetting which way it rises now. Uh, for rise in the west. <laughs> I think it's rising in the sets in the west. It only takes the sun to rise in the west once, and your hypothesis is a crop. And when you have four sunrises in the west, then you've definitely got a real problem in your hands. Then and, you've just uh, got four paradoxes. Well, well, easily explained because they did. Well, the explanation is, oh, they did other things that raised the level of heart disease by the same amount as they would have been lowering it. So that's why they didn't work. One can you could just use the same argument the other way around about statins, and they said, yeah, well, well, it had nothing to do with it, only lowering it. Because the other things they did that had an impact on cardiovascular disease. Well, no, that explanation can't. That, no, we don't like that explanation. We like the other explanation. You can't convince somebody who's unable to be convinced. It's just impossible. doesn't have an incentive to be convinced because financially, there's a lot more money to be made in the simplistic explanations of disease that require a pill. You know, if you can sell people, if you can convince people that the problem is the lack of a magic pill, then you can make a lot of money selling a magic pill. Well, to quote, I can't remember his name now. He's a few quotes. Um, uh, one of his quotes was um, an American politician. He said, the, uh, the, the electorate have spoken, the bastards. And his other quote was, um, it's very difficult to convince somebody if their salary depends on something, if their salary depends on them not believing it. And we are in that situation. Uh, well, yeah, money, money talks. I don't, I don't, you know, yeah. do I hugely blame these researchers? Well, I sort of do, but, but, you know, we all have to make a living. We have to go home and look after our children. And it's very difficult to go against the mainstream, very difficult against the mainstream i mean i'm lucky enough in that you know as a general practitioner i'm not a researcher i'm not going to lose research funding because i don't have any i never will i have i have put research funding for applications and been miserably rejected several times i can be critical of the cholesterol hypothesis and not lose my job i can't be critical of the of anything to do with vaccination or i will lose my job so i tend don't to jinx quiet. it 
Oh, you keep quiet. Well, I, uh, well, I probably lose my job. I'll lose my job. Um, I've reached an age where I'm bothered about it. But, uh, but equally, if you go too far and you upset people too much, you're not going to get excited. It's a hard one, isn't it? If you really just say you're all talking rubbish and, and really go at them, maybe you have more chance of winning eventually. If you're relatively calm and quiet, oh, quiet, quiet's not the right word about it, then people might listen. Oh, that sounds like a reasonable guy. He sounds quite reasonable. All what he's saying sounds quite reasonable. So, you know, I, I don't know how strongly you attack things that are wrong and whether a full frontal head-on attack is a better way or or trying to just get people to shift you know have you thought about this have you thought about this the reason i wrote my light my latest book the great clot thickens is just attacking the cholesterol hypothesis this seems to get nowhere but it seems to just reform itself and grow stronger so i thought well part of the reason for that is that my my metaphor was like it was like blowing up a planet and then wondering why Every time you blow it up, it just coalesces again. It's because there's nowhere else for the matter to go, if you like. Whereas at least if you can say, well, here's another way of looking at heart disease. This actually fits the facts somewhat better, or hopefully fits the facts, all the facts. Then maybe people's thinking can move across to this, because it's something positive rather than negative all the time, which you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. This is rubbish. It's nonsense. It doesn't make any sense to say, actually, and here's another idea. Here's a, here's a different way of looking at it. And I think that makes more sense. And I think if you look at it, you may find it does make more sense. And therefore, it's somewhere else for you to go. Now, I don't expect any of the experts currently, the, the high-level key opinion leaders, to pay any attention to it. But I'm kind of hopeful maybe that some younger doctors or some younger researchers might say, you know what, I think that does make more sense. So I'm going to have a look at it. So that's sort of where I am at the moment, if you like. So I agree with you entirely. And, uh, you know, I, I, I like to keep drawing analogy to economic. Before Bitcoin came along, uh, this was kind of what proper economists or Austrian school economists would say, that they're just constantly out there telling people, no, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. You shouldn't do this this way, you should do it that way. And with Bitcoin, it's, it's entirely refreshing that you don't have to convince them that they're wrong. You can just show them that this does it better. Yes. This is just better money. So what is your explanation for heart disease? Why does heart disease uh, come along? If it's not cholesterol. Right, well, uh, I like to be suitably modest in saying that my explanation for heart disease was first proposed in 1852, also in Austria. Right, so, so it's in the place that all good ideas come from. Uh, Karl von Rokitansky, a researcher, looked at plaques in arteries and said, oh, what I'm looking at here are blood clots or the remnants of blood clots metamorphosing into you know, different structure, obviously. If you damage the body, it starts off, you know, you get a cut in your arm, it starts off as a cut. Well, it will gradually heal together, but then you'll get a, a line of calcification and all sorts of things. It will look completely different than it did the moment you cut it. So, so what he said was, I'm just looking at blood clots here. And so his hypothesis was that atherosclerotic plaques are the remnants of blood clots in various stages of repair and metamorphosis. And in fact, it was another, it was a German, obviously, because we don't, you know, we, we don't like the German scientists, they're far too certain, but it was actually uh, Verkau, who's a very famous German scientist and a very famous and brilliant man. But he said, well, then, how does a blood clot get inside the artery wall? Now, I, I did talk about there's, there's a lining to all arteries and blood vessels called the endothelium, which is a single cell, a bit like a wall tile. And what you find is that obviously the plaque the thickening is underneath the wall tiles 
So you, you've obviously had to get it through the wall tiles in some way or other. Rokitansky didn't really have an explanation for this. So how could it be underneath it? How can you have a blood clot forming that's not in the actual blood vessel? So the idea kind of died a death. Other researchers looked at it and have looked at it over the years. After the Second World War, there was a researcher called Dugid who looked at it again and said, I, I'm looking, I think I'm looking at blood clots. Or, or the remnants of blood clots here. And Ross, uh, I forgot his first name, in the 70s was very much the response to injury hypothesis, which was that you first of all have to damage the artery wall in some way. A blood clot then forms over that, that damaged area and then the healing process comes along. But the, the, the blood clot that, that was on the inside of the artery wall, if you like, was, was sort of sitting there, has been pulled back into and covered over with a new layer of endothelium. And, and it sits in there, and, and that becomes the focus for further blood clots. So you might get blood clot after blood clot after blood clot at the same point. Now, normally, this is a process that's actually probably happening in all of our arteries to a degree all at the same time. But in most cases, the repair systems get to work and the whole thing is cleared up and there's nothing left. There's not a problem. So say if you smoke a cigarette, if you smoke, they had done a uh, study on cigarette smoking. They got healthy volunteers to smoke one cigarette, one cigarette and they then measured what effect that had on their blood vessels and they found that um, you could see the remnants of of destroyed and dead endothelial cells you could measure that so they're called microparticles it's the breakdown products of endothelial cells so smoking one cigarette strips off a number quite a lot i don't know how many of endothelial cells in your blood vessels at the same time, the repair systems kick in, and the repair systems consist of producing more endothelial cells in the bone marrow, pre-endothelial cells, that float around, find the area of damage, cover it over. Over each area of damage, you must have developed a blood clot, because if you, if you strip off the um, one endothelial, or probably more than one endothelial cell, if you strip off endothelial cells, it exposes the artery wall to the bloodstream, and sitting within the artery wall are, is a stuff called tissue factor, and tissue factor is like blood clot you will blood clot now so the moment you expose the artery wall or any blood vessel wall to the bloodstream a blood clot will form that's an absolute and and, and studies have shown and shown and shown so why doesn't cigarette smoking cause you to instantly die of heart disease with blood clots forming everywhere the answer is the very small blood clots the repair systems kick in and mostly everything is cleared up however as you get older and your repair systems start to fall to bits or you're smoking more and more and you do other things that damage your artery walls as well, the, the, the rate of damage is greater than the rate of repair. And this is how I kind of explain to people, it's a bit like having a road that you don't ever repair. So you get a pothole, you get another pothole and eventually you just have a road of potholes. So the repair systems have to come along and get rid of these areas of damage, which they do a good job of. But it comes a point where they can't do enough repair and this is the reason why plaques only happen in arteries because arteries have a blood pressure of say on average 100 millimeters of mercury it's a very arcane way of measuring blood pressure how much mercury gets pushed up a tube by the pressure on your arm your veins it's about a 30th of that so the blood pressure is very low so the, the amount of biomechanical stresses on an endothelial cell in the arteries is very high and in the, in the veins it's very low and we know that, that to an extent we already know this is the case because if you take a vein from the leg and use it as a, as a bypass in the, in, the, in the heart, 
So you do a coronary artery bypass. These bypasses block up very quickly with atherosclerosis, like within six to seven years of it, faster than that sometimes. So it's not that plaques can't form in veins, because we know that they can form in veins. What you have to do, though, is turn a vein into an artery. And the moment you turn a vein into an artery, you start to get atherosclerotic plaques developing. So the cholesterol level is exactly the same. The LDL is everything. Everything is the same except the blood pressure. And you can get blood, blood clots in the, you can get plaques in the lungs and the commonest causes of that is you've got a hole in your heart and the blood goes from the right side to the left side by mistake. Pressure in the right side is high and the pressure in your lungs is increased hugely. And people with this condition called Eisenmenger syndrome are quite likely to develop atherosclerotic plaques in their lungs. So there's nothing structurally or, or biochemically different from the lungs and the veins and the arteries. It's purely the amount of biomechanical stress that they are under. So you can do anything you like. You can smoke and have a blood sugar level through the roof and da-da-da-da-da-da. You ain't going to get plaques in your veins. It doesn't happen. So what's the difference? The difference is the blood pressure. Why is the blood pressure different? Because obviously there's an awful lot more stress. I sometimes liken it to a vein is a bit like when the Nile reaches the Nile Delta and it's moving, the river's moving very slowly and, and sluggishly. Whereas if you, if you go up, well, probably not the Nile, but if you go upstream in most rivers, you reach a point where you've got white water tumbling through the rocks and the biomechanical stress is much higher. So you need that biomechanical stress or nothing is going to happen. What sort of things then add further damage to your arteries? Well, we know that smoking can do it. We know that having a raised blood pressure can obviously do it. We know that having a raised blood sugar level in diabetes can do it. And why does that happen? Because, shortest explanation, the high levels of sugar damage, there's another layer up, above the endothelial cells that protects the endothelial cells, and that's called the glycocalyx. 99% of doctors have never heard of the glycocalyx. They don't know that it exists, but it's a gigantically important part of your cardiovascular system. Anyway, if you have diabetes, the glycocalyx, which is like a, a forest distic, becomes a, a forest distic, and therefore the endothelial cells are much more prone to damage. What other things can cause it? Well, interestingly, SARS virus can damage the endothelial cells. So, in fact, I was writing a chapter in the book on viral infections increasing the risk of heart disease when SARS-CoV-2 came along, and what they found was people with diabetes, in fact, well, they found was that people were getting a lot of blood clots and were dying of blood clots. And that was the thing that was killing most people rather than the infection in their lungs. And no one seemed to be able to understand how a viral infection could cause blood clots and heart attacks and strokes, etc. I said, well, this is very simple. What happens is the SARS virus gets into cells using a, a receptor called the ACE2 receptor. It doesn't really matter, but it's to do with ACE2 receptors have a, an influence on blood vessel tightening control, et cetera, et cetera. If you don't have an ACE2 receptor, the virus can't get into the cell. It cannot gain entry. Um, and the highest concentration of, of ACE2 receptors are A in the lungs and B in the, in the blood vessels. So the SARS-CoV-2 is getting into endothelial cells around the body. It's growing inside them. It multiplies inside them. It bursts out and it kills the endothelial cells. Well, once you start blowing up endothelial cells around your body, you're going to get blood clots forming rapidly all around your body. Those blood clots can become severe enough to cause heart attacks and strokes. There's another condition I was actually writing about, it was called Kawasaki's disease, which you've never heard of, or you may have heard of, 
And Kawasaki's disease is a disease whereby you get a vasculitis, in other words, inflammation in your blood vessels, mainly in children, probably viral, although no one's ever identified what the viral virus might be. Now, in Kawasaki's disease, you get a vasculitis, and you get, again, you get blood clotting. And in vasculitis, you get severe damage to your arteries as well, such that in the six to 10 years following Kawasaki's disease, your risk of dying of a heart attack, and you have quite a low risk at this age, is increased 50-fold, 50 times, times 50. So I was looking at this, and then SARS-CoV-2 came along, and I said, well, what we're looking at here is, is exactly the same thing. It's, it's the vasculitis. The, the endothelial cells are being damaged. You're getting blood clots. You're getting heart attacks. You're getting strokes. Big surprise. Made worse if you've got diabetes, because of diabetes, the raised blood sugar level damages your arteries. So, so the hypothesis begins to make sense, if you like, from that point of view. And you can look at all sorts of things where you say, well, how does this cause it? How does that cause it? I look at one of the, one of the, the commonest reasons for young men having premature heart disease, plaques and heart attacks, is using cocaine. And the reason why cocaine, well, is the question is if you snort cocaine, the, the, the septum in your nose disintegrates and falls out. That's one of the things that people know about it. So you ask the question, why does the septum of your nose disintegrate when you take cocaine? It's because it causes an enormously potent damage to your blood vessels, the vasculitis, if you like, in the blood vessels in your nose. So your nose septum dies and falls out. So you say, well, it's doing that to your nose. Imagine what it's doing to your arteries around your heart. Well, it does. It causes this damage and inflammation to your blood vessels in your heart and everywhere else around your body. And the risk, if you, the risk of, of dying of a heart attack within one hour of taking cocaine is increased 30-fold versus, versus other people. And young male and female, presumably, I haven't really looked at it so much, cocaine users have got severe atherosclerosis all around their body, despite having no other risk factors. So you say to people, well, well okay, well, so you've got SARS-CoV-2, you've got Kawasaki's disease, you've got co cocaine use, you've got diabetes, you've got raised blood pressure. You've got all the things that we know re increase the risk of heart disease and they all have one thing in common one thing in common which is that they damage the endothelial cells in especially in your arteries because they're under extreme stress and then you have the you have the blood vessel the blood clot forms and then the blood clots absorbed into the artery wall and then because it's happening rapidly there's no time for this to recover before the next blood clot comes along and then a plaque begins to form and grow and thicken and that is what heart disease is. It's all the same process. Does that make sense, Dean? Very much so, yes, absolutely. I think it makes a lot more sense. Good, bad, bad, good cholesterol having an insane dance with one another, which you know can only magically be fixed by the world's most profitable drug, coincidentally. <laughs> well, it used to be that when the new drugs coming along, the injectables, PCSK9s, Yes, which a gene, which inhibit a gene that that's a, that stops the LDL receptors from being recycled, and it just allows the this receptor in cells to be sent back to the surface. So they pull more LDL out of the bloodstream, and the LDL level drops more than with statins. The only slight, well, there's two problems with them. One is they haven't been found to reduce overall mortality or cardiovascular mortality. The other problem with them is they cost about 100 times as much as statins. My calculation on PCSK9 inhibitors, which no one's ever heard of, but don't worry, they're being used, is that if everybody in the UK swapped from taking a, a statin to a PCSK9 inhibitor, it would cost 
90 billion pounds a year. And that is the UK alone. So that would be um, uh, five-sixths of the entire cost of the NHS spent on one medication that does absolutely no good to anybody. But there we are. So, uh, yes, the ideas that I've suggested here are not new. They've been around for 150 years. They've been pushed quite hard by various people over the years. It's just, no one's ever heard of it. And it sounds, you know, when I say it to people, they say this sounds preposterous. And I go, well, give me a chance. I'll explain it to you. You will understand it. I said, give me a risk. Give me something. That, I happen to be looking at, at, you may have heard of it, SLE, lupus. Uh, you don't know if you've heard of it. It's a, it's a condition that's quite rare, but it affects um, women more than men. And women with lupus, young women with lupus, have an increased risk of dying of cardiovascular disease, which is, and this is almost my favorite, although it's a bizarre thing to be your favorite statistic, have an increased risk of cardiovascular disease of 5,000%. 5,000%. That figure is less scary than you might think because young, young women don't have a huge risk of heart disease, so 5,000% increase doesn't mean they're all going to die within the next three weeks. But that, that when you've got a risk that is that high, I mean, if you look at the, the I mean, I, I've gone back in history and looked at, you know, what, what, what is the increased risk of having a high LDL level? And, and even, even the most sort of positive papers are coming up with an increased risk of 15% or 12%. So this is just nothing. You know, I can find your condition, raises your risk of heart disease by 5,000%. When you're looking at a risk like that, you know you're looking at causes. I mean, real proper causes, not pretend causes. So if you can't explain why SLE, systemic lupus erythematosus, increases the risk of heart disease by 5,000% when it has no effects on LDL or, or any of your other standard risk factors, you don't have an explanation, do you? You have something here. This is the this is this is the sun rotating five thousand times a day from the west. You've got to explain stuff like this, or you don't have an explanation. And they can't, and they don't, and they just sort of ignore it. This is you know where the paradox comes in, or the, or credentials. You know, that, yes. well, my credentials are bigger than yours. So what do you know? Yeah. Well, they're just going to go. Well, it's uh, well, it's. I've never heard an explanation. No one's ever come up with one. But the explanation yeah. is, if, if you say it's due to blood clots, then the explanation is like, beep, very easy. Yeah. Systemic lupus erythematosus is associated with a real high risk of what they call vasculitis, inflammation, and damage to your blood vessels. That's what it is. It's primarily, a, it's not primarily, it's primarily a vasculitis. And yet no one looks at this and you go, well, the explanation is staring you in the face. You cannot surely, and if you have got a better explanation, come up with it. Tell me what it is. Tell me, what is it? No. In fact, there's one condition that has a higher risk of cardiovascular disease in percentage terms than SLE, and that is, that is a, a sickle cell disease. Mm. And sickle cell disease in young people all right, has increased risk of 50,000%. 50,000%. That was one study, but I'm, I'm going with that because I like it. And you say, well, now, if you cannot explain why a disease increases the risk of cardiovascular disease by 50,000, if you have not even a hypothesis that remotely you can even point to and go, which they don't, then you, you are 
just talking nonsense. You know, here's an absolute beat, 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 beat cause. You won't get a bigger risk than this. There is no bigger risk than this. I've studied heart disease for 40 years. This is it. This is the number one, absolutely the most in, hugely increased. Children used to die four and five and six of heart attacks with, with sickle cell because they get transfusions now and, and, and alterations and people are now getting um, genetic treatment to reduce the, the damage of sickle. A sickle cell, by the way, is, you know, it looks like a sickle, it looks like a crescent moon. So a red blood cell is supposed to be circular and squidgy. And a sickled cell is, is shaped like a sickle. And if you've got a lot of these cells, it's very bad news. And you can say, well, how does sickle cell disease cause cardiovascular disease? In fact, I was looking at a paper 20 years ago. I just was interested in this. And it didn't dawn on me then. I was saying, well, if you've got a, a round, squidgy red blood cell going through your blood vessels, it's probably not going to do much damage. But if you have a very sharp, pointy, rigid red blood cell battering through your arteries, then it's going to be crashing up against the lining of your arteries and stripping it off day after day. Surprise, surprise. And it was it was a case history of a of a 12-year-old boy who was taken into hospital with gangrene of his foot. People said, well, how has he got gangrene of his foot? Well, in fact, they had to amputate because the blood supply in his lower leg was so poor that he couldn't sustain the foot. It just dies, basically. And then they did some scans on him and found that every single artery in his body was riddled with what they call calcified atherosclerosis. In other words, that's the sort of thing you might see in an 85 or 90-year-old, that level of calcified calcification happens after damages happen to the body. It's one of the things the body does with damage. It calcifies it. So this 12-year-old boy, now his brother died age five of a stroke because he had sickle cell as well. And every single artery in his body was riddled with, with, with plaques and atherosclerosis. No other risk factors. Nothing. And then you say, well, 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 here's an explanation. The explanation and, and the people who did this case study actually said the reason why is because of the, the rigid sickled cells in his bloodstream damaging his artery walls and causing atherosclerosis. They wrote that 20 years ago. And I didn't read the paper properly at the time, but I went back to it. <laughs> you know, you've seen it. You know what's happening here. You know exactly what's happening here. Why didn't you make any more noise? Why didn't you jump up and down and go, hey, guys, we have the answer? Because the cholesterol hypothesis is so powerful that no one dares say, we know something completely different. Now, we've seen it. We, we've written papers about this. This is, this is the thing, right? SLE, this is the thing. Condition called Hughes disease, antiphospholipid syndrome. There's a condition called antiphospholipid syndrome. Your cell membranes are primarily made of phospholipids, which is basically two layers of lipids that join together. And they're called phospholipids because of phospho phosphate end and a lipid end. Antiphospholipid syndrome is where the body decides to attack phospholipids, which is obviously not a good idea because every cell in your body is made of phospholipids. And so antiphospholipid syndrome is actually closely associated with systemic lupus erythematosus as well. So what happens is that the immune system starts attacking endothelial cells, it starts damaging them. And, and, and people with S, this uh, Hughes syndrome, EPS, antiphospholipid syndrome, they die young of heart attacks and strokes. The risk is gigantic. Although about, about 
one in 200 people have antiphospholipid syndrome, it is, it is reckoned to account for 50% of all strokes in the under 50 age group. 50%, one, two. And, and obviously having a stroke when you're 40 or 30 is a blooming complete disaster. And so we, here we have yet another example, and, and this is well known by mainstream medicine. They know ADS exists, they know Hughes syndrome exists, they know that this happens, and yet they will not make the connection and say, well, what links that together with SLE or Kawasaki's disease or diabetes or having gum infection? No, having, having a gum infection, prolonged gum infections, increases your risk of heart disease hugely. Even the American Heart Association, which is the most cholesterol-centric group in the world, says it does. It doesn't give an explanation for it. They say, well, how can having disease in your gums cause atherosclerosis? Again, they don't ask these questions. They just, they just say it does. They go, well, here's the explanation. And the explanation is that if you have bacteria in your bloodstream, which you will have if you have gum disease, periodontitis, because bacteria, their, their, their waste product is called an, a toxin, it's called an exotoxin. Right? So exo being out with and toxin being out. Exotoxins float around in the bloodstream and the place that they attack and damage is your endothelial cells. That's what they do. So clearly we have yet another, easily explained by if you damage the endothelium and you cause blood clots, you get heart disease. This is like, well, well, Where's your other explanation? We don't have one. It's just a fact. So, so they're saying is in the end about medicine is that it, it it doesn't matter what your hypothesis is. Do the facts fit? Does the evidence fit? So this alternative explanation is it well all the all the facts fit actually. You can't find a fact that doesn't fit, and it explains it in this way. But if you are stuck with the cholesterol hypothesis, you just can't believe it. You can't believe it because that means you got one or the other. If you explain it, if you are, if you accept this, this is wrong, right? That's it. So if if we accept your theory, and I, and I must confess, I mean, I find it extremely compelling. I find it far more compelling than diet heart hypothesis and the cholesterol LDL story. So if we accept this, what are the implications? How do you protect yourself from heart disease? Then you don't smoke, obviously. <laughs> if what are the common, you know, on what they call a population level, what are the commonest causes of heart disease? Probably having a raised blood sugar level or diabetes is possibly your number one. So you should probably avoid, at that point, eating carbohydrates and start eating a high-fat diet because then your blood sugar level will drop. And you may even reverse your type 2 diabetes. And again, the problem with the cholesterol hypothesis, the diet heart hypothesis, is it's all linked together. So it's like you eat saturated fat, it raises your cholesterol, you die of heart disease. So if you then come along and say, well, no part of that is correct, but however, what you should be doing is eating saturated fat, then you're attacking the whole hypothesis right at its very root. So you start that and everyone just goes, shut up. So you eat a high fat diet and that will protect your cardiovascular system if you have diabetes, type two diabetes. You exercise because that actually has very beneficial effects on, on cardiovascular health, the health of your endothelial cells, etc. One of the ones, another of my great sort of contradiction ones, is you go out and you get sunlight because sunshine increases a substance called nitric oxide. And nitric oxide is the single most potent endothelial strengthening and health, healthing, if you like, 
substance in the body. Nitric oxide is 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 like the the magic molecule, and sunlight increases nitric oxide synthesis. It does all sorts of other things as well. Sunshine is incredibly beneficial to people. We're advised to stay out of the sun, but the sun, a study done in, in, in Sweden looked at women who sunbathe a lot. They had five minute quintiles of it. Women who sunbathe a lot, women who sunbathe quite a lot, women who sunbathe an average amount and towards women who effectively avoided the sun. And what they found was that um, is that women who avoided the sun had a risk of premature early mortality or increased mortality, which was equivalent to if they had smoked 20 cigarettes a day. So avoiding the sun in this study was just the most damaging thing that you could do to yourself. And yet we are told again and again to stay out of the sun. It, it is another of the nonsense things, but it's, in my opinion, Go out, walk in the sun, get outside. These things all are very beneficial to your cardiovascular system. Unfortunately, I can't, I have no patented wonderful magical device uh, of, of anything that does this. It's all like basic stuff. Be relaxed because obviously if you are stressed, once you trigger your stress system, this does all sorts of long-term damaging things to your cardiovascular system. Personally, I think negative chronic stress strain is is the single most damaging thing for your cardiovascular system the people in the world who are the most stressed or under strain are people with schizophrenia they are hugely they are so stressed that you can actually measure changes in their brain in their in their stress system the reason why they died well they died they commit suicide obviously which is one one example of how stressed they are but they after that they basically just die of, of cardiovascular disease and that's true of people who have bipolar disorder. It's true of anyone who has any serious medical, mental health issues. PTSD, for instance, huge increase in the risk of cardiovascular disease, anxiety, depression. In fact, there's, this, there's something I tell people, they never believe it, but it happens to be true. Is if you become severely depressed, really bad, very badly depressed, you can also, you can become diabetic can actually cause type 2 diabetes. And there was a condition in the First World War where they looked at men who'd got what we would now probably call PTSD, and they found that they actually, in this condition, these men would actually show sugar in their urine. They would become what called glycosuria. They would develop glycosuria due to mental stress. So because the hormones, the underlying nervous system uh, changes, are directly antagonistic, directly antagonistic to uh, to insulin in many sites. So if you raise stress hormone levels and then trigger the neurohormonal system, you will become, you can become diabetic. Someone had a question about stress, I think, or asking that question. Yes, Peter wanted to ask you about stress. Yeah, one of the things I found very interesting, Malcolm, in your book was in the final chapter, you talked about this issue of stress, but then you outlined different categories of stress and explained that there are certain kinds of activity like having a disagreeable boss that are bad for your health and are stressful, but other kinds of stress like passing an exam and succeeding, those are good for your health. So I just wondered if you could explain to us what the physiological mechanism is through which those kinds of stress have different impacts on the body. Yes, <laughs> it's, it, 
I say it's quite it's complicated. I think that that I would, I would place it down as if you have a form of stress that you can control to a degree, then it, it's not getting at you all the time. So if you have, say, a bullying boss, it's something that's just there constantly, chronically, all the time. You never can get rid of it. If you're studying for an exam, for example, and then there's a sense of achievement at the end of it, so it has a defined endpoint. If you're constantly studying for an exam and you never passed it, it would be the same sort of stress as, as if you like, having the bullying boss syndrome. So it's the chronic negative stress, it's almost like an attitude of mind as much as anything else. They used to at some point call it prime ministerial stress versus filing clerk stress. So prime minister can be under a hugely stressful situation, but they also feel at some point you can say, look, I've had enough of this, I'm, I'm going to the pub, or I'm going out for a walk. They, they are in control. It's, it, it appears to be a loss of control. So you're in a situation where you cannot control it and you can't get out of it is, is terribly damaging. You can be under what they call different stresses, taking part in an exam or standing up giving a talk. These things are things you can say, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to do that. It's when you feel compelled and unable to stop it, stress, which is to an extent, I say economic stresses, stressors like being not having enough money to pay for stuff. There was a study in South Africa which looked at, at men who were under financial stress were, were 13 times more likely to have a heart attack in the next. I think it was four years. So financial stress is chronic. It never goes away stress. So I think the difference is not that there is necessarily a difference. I think it's just, can you stop it? Can you switch it off? Can you get away from it? Which is why I think things like exercise are good because it raises up your stress system and then it, then it drops back down again. So exercise can help to control what's happening within your stress system. You know, the, the worst form of chronic stress physiologically is is actually having a having a tumor in in your adrenal glands where you get a thing called Cushing's disease so it overproduces cortisol continuously and this is absolutely disastrous for cardiovascular health it makes you become diabetic blah 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 so it's i think it's the constant continuousness of it the trappedness of it rather than the actual stress itself necessarily does that make sense yeah yeah that makes sense I also heard that if you're in a situ stressful situation, then your amygdala is active all the time and that can change your brain such that the amygdala kind of is permanently damaged, is permanently yeah. Yeah. turned onto this active state. Is there any truth to that? It's very complex stuff, but I know someone has done a lot of research in this, but people with what they call PTSD, what appears to happen is there is actually structural changes in your brain such that, so, so say, maybe simplifying it, you're, you're in the army, and you're in a, in, a, in a truck, and then there's a sound of someone shouting something or a dog barks or whatever, and then the truck blows up, you're, you're left as a survivor. Well, your brain then becomes ultra-sensitized to that danger. So a dog barks, someone slams a door, and you're like that. And that seems to be because a lot of the, the brain has actually changed its structure. You can see the, strain, the, the, the structural changes. So you're less able to cope with things that other people would cope, cope with. So if you look at that from children who are abused physically or sexually when they're younger, have structural changes in their brain and they are unable to deal with stresses in the same way that others can, if you like. So a thing that you or I would, so, so classically, if you're sexually abused, a lot of people can't stand then to be touched in a certain way. And if they're touched, it creates a terrifically powerful kind of negative reaction in them and that triggers the whole system off. So, 
So such people are, are super sensitized and there are structural differences. You can see structural differences in the brains of schizophrenics, really quite major and significant increases in, in the volume of certain parts of the brain and decreases in others. So it's, it's there, it's real, it's, but it can be seen real in physical changes. Which way round that happens for sure is, is, is not entirely certain, but those changes are there. And once they're there, you kind of got them. Thank you. Yes. So I'm wondering when it comes to this damage, so you mentioned this kind of things that create this uh, damage. Is this reversible or do you think it's just a one-way street? If you've been eating garbage for 30 years of your life, you've obviously accumulated a lot of damage. Will fixing your ways mend things or does that work only when you're young or what do you think yeah well put it another way around is that um i think you can you can stop the damage you can't you know if you've got what you call a calcified atherosclerotic plaque in your core in your arteries in your heart there's very little evidence that that will ever go away once it's there it's there however the important thing is to stop it progressing there's a lot of work on what they call CAC, coronary artery calcification scans, where you scan the heart and look how much calcium there is in the arteries. That's a sign of, you like, past damage. That past damage, I have seen little evidence that you can ever reduce it. What you can do, however, is you can do things to stop it. And if you're stopping it, then the risk, your risk can become equivalent to, to anybody else of your age. It's, it's more that it's progressing or not progressing. So can you reverse plaque? damage not really can you stop plaque damage from increasing yes and if you do that it's just about it's just about as good i mean looking at another way they looked at maasai villagers in kenya who have going back to the 1960s and 70s they had none or very low rate of death from cardiovascular disease and then they looked at their arteries and found there was actually quite a lot of calcium in their arteries they were not they were not perfect arteries completely clear they had discalcification but but they didn't die of cardiovascular disease so they it, it depends there's, there's some other factors going on here if you you can get if you like alterations in death. if you do very heavy exercise very heavy exercises ultra marathon runners etc have got pretty knackered coronary arteries when you look at them but then they are also then they are also not likely to die of cardiovascular disease. So they're getting this damage, but other things are protecting them. It does not reverse. But so long as you're doing all the other things right, it's less of an issue. It's the final thing that will kill you is the final blood clot, the one that blocks the artery completely. Bang, right? And you can get areas of damage building up and building up and building up. But so long as you don't get that secondary situation, which is the big one comes along, it completely blocks the artery. You're not going to have the major problems of other people. So this is um, it's a complicated area, but you won't you won't reverse calcified plaques in your arteries, but you can stop them growing and you can stop them causing you health problems. Okay, that's good. Well, I mean, kind of good, I guess, but uh, <laughs> can't roll yeah, back well, time. We're, we're, we're all we're all going to die, mate. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I stop that, that one. That's not that one ever happening, but what, what you want, you can reduce risks, reduce risks, reduce risks. Yes, these yeah. are, are, there are beneficial things to do. I've been looking at ways of measuring glycocalyx health, which is obviously potentially a much more immediate way of saying, because if you do a, a calcium scan, then you, to an extent you've got to wait on a year before you do another one, otherwise you're not going to see any meaningful difference in it. You don't really know if you're doing the right things or not right away. Whereas you can measure the, the glycocalyx, this 
forest of glycoproteins that protects the protects the endothelium beneath, you can measure this. It can be measured. It can be measured in real time. And in fact, it is still in a kind of research phase for most people. You get a device, you stick it under the tongue. It looks at the very small blood vessels, the capillaries. It looks at the speed that red blood cells go through. It looks at the thickness of the glycocalyx. And it's used in, uh, in sepsis monitoring now. Sepsis, as you may know, is we get blood infection, a bacteria gets into your bloodstream. And when that happens, the bacteria release toxins, exotoxins into your bloodstream. They damage the blood vessels. This causes blood clotting all around your body. It's called disseminated intravascular coagulation. That's the thing that kills you. You can monitor the thickness of the glycocalyx. And if you have a thicker glycocalyx, you are more likely to survive. The thinner your glycocalyx is, the less likely you are to survive. And if it's, if it's thinning down on you, it's a really bad sign. So the research evidence is not there hasn't been long enough and enough people to look at, but I do believe that if you measure the glycocalyx and you can see it thickening and improving, then, then you're doing good things. I mean, even in a very short term, if you give someone a, a glucose drink and their blood sugar level goes up, you can see in real time the glycocalyx shrinking. And then afterwards it comes back up again. It repairs, it, it's, it can repair itself quite quickly. So I think that... Um, this is potentially where the most interesting research is going to be, is measuring in real time the health of your glycocalyx, because if that is healthy, your endothelium is being protected and things are going well. If that's thin, you're in potential trouble. So, so I think that, that, that will be a very interesting area. And what do you think about fasting? Do you think fasting can protect or improve? Uh, I do think fasting is a good idea. Uh, if in that we have to give our body a chance to, to reset. And I think one of the big problems we have is people eating all the time. Well, they're eating. People were actually told to snack regularly, weren't they, at one time. I don't know if this is still wild advice, but actually, yes, we are, I think we're physiologically designed, probably because we couldn't find enough food in the past at times, to starve. And I think it does help to reset things. Obviously, your blood sugar level will go down. You'll not be in a constantly fed stroke, overfed state. So your physiology has a chance to get itself into a better shape so i think you know the idea of whether you have to have like a five-day fast or a two-day fast or whatever or whether you just have you, you eat at eight o'clock at night and then you don't eat anything until six o'clock the next evening or whatever i can't see the data clearly enough to say that one is definitely superior to the other but i would definitely recommend having periods during the day where you don't eat yeah. Let's get back to statins then. What is assessment of statins? I know you're a big fan. <laughs> Joking, no. Well, no, well, I mean, what I say to people is they have shown some benefits in what they call secondary prevention. Secondary prevention means you've already had a heart attack or a stroke or diagnosed heart disease. In other words, basically you're high risk. The benefits in primary prevention, in other words, you don't have pre-existing heart disease, are, are vanishingly small, really such that uh, I personally don't think they're worth it. I think that, that you know, that a lot of studies have shown really no. In primary prevention, there was a bunch of studies that came out that showed there was some reduction in cardiovascular disease death, sort of, maybe. But no one had ever shown there was any benefit in overall mortality, which is the main reason why you want to take a drug. Is it going to actually make you live any longer? Because otherwise, what's the point? So the primary prevention studies had showed no benefit until there was one that came out in 2008 called the Jupiter study, 
which was a really, really dodgy study in my opinion, in that the reduction in overall mortality was actually in cancer mortality in a statin. And that's what pushed the overall mortality benefits into statistical significance. There's no benefit on cardiovascular mortality. No other study has ever shown cancer benefit from taking statins. So when you get one study showing this, you shouldn't at that point say, aha, it works. You go, well, actually, you know, this is not sun rising in the West. This is, this is actually a, you know, the problem with statistical significance in clinical trials is you can have five deaths in 20,000 people and it will trigger it over this magical statistically significant target. As we all know, you can throw, you can toss a coin 20 times and it can come up heads every time. That can happen. So when you get 20 trials showing nothing and one trial showing something, what you say is, well, I think I'll go with the 19 that showed nothing and I'll ignore the 20th one unless we get another 20 trials showing some benefit. No other benefit shown. So I would say in primary prevention, the benefit is slight to potentially non-existent. In secondary prevention, there is some benefit. Is it significant enough? I mean, I've, I've written a lot and I've written papers and I've written papers with other people talking about the difference between, between relative and absolute risk, which no one can ever understand. But in clinical trials, they look at relative risks. So the relative risk can, can say there's a 20% reduction in, in the risk of heart disease if you take a statin for five years, blah, blah, blah. And that sounds quite impressive, or it could be 30% sometimes. But actually, what's the difference in real terms, in absolute terms? What we're talking about in general is a maximum of a reduction of about 1% in absolute mortality over five years in, in the clinical studies. We say, well, how can a 1% difference be presented as a 30% difference? Well, what, it, it, what's the difference between 1 and 1.5 is whatever it is off the top of my head, 30% approximately. So if, if 1.5% of people die in the placebo arm and 1% of people die in the statin arm, that's a 30% difference in mortality relative to 30% chance. The absolute difference is 0.5%. And yet the 30% difference is the one that they trumpet. The 0.5% they keep completely silent about. But the 0.5% is, is all that matters. Someone said, if you don't know what the absolute difference is, the relative difference in risk is meaningless. So if you have something that kills 50% of people and you reduce the risk by 30%, that's pretty significant. If you have something that kills one in 10,000 people and it reduces it by two, you know, or one, so it's reduced it from one in 10,000 to, you know, do it the other way around. It's, it's, one in 20,000. Yeah, to 20,000. Well, that can be presented as a 50% improvement or a one in 10,000% improvement. And that's basically noise. Well, it is noise, you know, and that's the level that we're at with these drugs. You know, I, I sometimes see people say, oh, well, this study was too small to prove anything. My counter argument is always, if you need a study with 40,000 people in either arm, the effect you're looking for is clearly so small, but clinically it is utterly insignificant. Yeah, and like with large with, with large data sets, I mean, you you'll get noise either way. So you just need to run the data twice, and you'll get one that shows you a positive effect, one that shows you a negative effect. You know, it's noise; it can go either way. And then you just report the one that shows the effect that you want. Well, the other thing that happened in statin trials was that um, up to the year two thousand and four or five, 
basically, if you were going to run a trial, you didn't need to, you didn't need to say how many people were on either side of it. What what were the outcomes you were looking for, or really anything? You just went, ah, it's been successful. After two thousand and five, you had to say these are the statistical things we're looking at. These are the outcomes we're looking at. This is what we're trying to do, and here's the trial protocol is set out, and you can see it on clinicaltrials.gov. You still don't show the raw data. We just have to take the pharmaceutical company's oh. own word for it. Well, absolutely, and, and that, yeah, that opens a, another gigantic can of worms. I mean, I've been a, there is one organization in the world called in Oxford that says they have all the raw data. We have it. You can't see it. No one else is allowed to look at it. By the way, we say that statins are wonderful. So can I have a look at your data? Nope. You can't see it. The towers. I mean, that is, the again, the opposite of science, isn't it? I mean, validation is absolutely key. And these people won't let anybody else see the data on statins. It's just yeah. ridiculous. It's completely inexcusable. And the facade they put around it that, oh, it has to be viewed by the experts and it needs to be peer-reviewed and all that stuff. It's all just so that they could, you know, have the freedom to treat the data as they like. It's transparent. Oh, yeah, well, even, I mean, you may have heard of the Cochrane collaboration, or you may not have, but they, yeah. whilst they're not perfect, they are at least free from commercial enterprises. And uh, the Cochrane collaboration under John Wright uh, sent, tried to send a researcher to Oxford to look at the data on adverse effects and uh, basically they were told we're not going to show it to you get stuff off you go I mean I mean if you can't if you want to show it to the Cochrane collaboration it's it's like anyway it yeah. it, it, is, it is it is again this is the this is a different way it's the opposite of science we won't let anybody else see what we're doing but we're going to tell you what we found you know? and you can't look at it yourselves because what because what you know it's commercially sensitive. Well, it can't be commercially sensitive because there's not a single statin that remains in patent. These drugs are way off patent now. So, so why are you still keeping this data, you know, from everybody? Well, the, the reason is either there's only one group of people who've got a big enough brain to understand it, or you're hiding shit. Yeah. I think I believe number two. You know, I'll go for number two. You're hiding shit. If people aren't uh, smart enough to understand this, you know, give them the data and let them figure out uh, on their own that they're not smart enough to understand it. There's no reason why you should hide it from them unless you have something to hide. Exactly. Why why would you be hiding something unless you've got something to hide is the answer. You know, they hide behind this. You know, why don't you just say to the pharmaceutical companies, guys, Pravastatin was launched in 1987. You know, and the patent ran out in, two, I think, 2001. 21 years later, we can't see any of the data from any of the clinical trials. This is, this is, it's almost unbelievable. You know, I do look at it and think, how can this not be causing people to be storming Parliament with pitchforks and, you know, burning torches? We must see the data, but no one seems to be remotely concerned about this. So, so if the patent had run out, so this would make a lot more sense if the drugs were still under patent because there's a lot of money to be made. But if the patent has run out, then anyone can manufacture them generically. Well, we so and, and they do. Uh, the, and they do. There's no, there's no statin left in patent. So the last so one ran out about seven years ago. Why is it such a uh, sacred cow of uh, modern medicine that they need to keep giving it to you if they can't even make money off of it? Well, well, the answer is either either it's because there's some explanation to do with something or other, or they're hiding stuff. 
I guess it's to hide the fact that they made a lot of money when the scientific evidence did not suggest that this was... Well, uh, well there, 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 there is another longer and slightly more complicated explanation, which is the one I'm currently going on, is that if you show that, if the data shows that actually they didn't really work or or that they the reduction in LDL was nothing to do with any benefit they caused, they do make a lot of money now out of the latest generation of cholesterol-lowering agents. Now, if you look at the statin data and say, well, actually, this disproves, we, there are those of us who think the data actually disproves the LDL hypothesis. No, I'm not going to go into that in any great detail. Now, if you disprove the LDL hypothesis by looking at the data, then all, the, all, of, all of the rationale for the, the latest, more expensive LDL-lowering agents also dies. So if you, if you attack statin, you attack the entire hypothesis, and the entire hypothesis continues to sustain an enormously profitable industry on the back of it. So, so you can understand why they fight so hard to do to, to keep it secret even now, is my explanation for it. I, I may be wrong on that, but that's what I think. Now, so, so, that, so much for the effectiveness. What about the negative side effects of statins? Do you think they're really serious? I think they can be very serious. I did a, a, a review of was well, a study. They call it the nocebo effect, which is the opposite of the placebo effect. And then they now say that no one actually has any adverse effects with statins. It's just because they imagine they are better. They are getting the adverse effects, and therefore they don't actually have any adverse effects. That's that's the nocebo effect. I said, well, well, if this is true, then it means that no drug has ever had a negative effect <laughs> in the history of medicine, because everyone's just imagining everything. I said, well, why isn't the placebo effect, which we know exists, why doesn't that counteract the nocebo effect? And whatever's <laughs> left is actually the benefits that you've got. But of course, nobody knows what the placebo effect is because it's never been measured, whether it exists or not. I say this is, a, this is one of my other, my other controversies. What of the placebo effect? We should surely know by now what the placebo effect is since we've done all these hundreds of trials. It should have been quite clear if there is an effect, how big it is, and then we could we could we could control for this in further studies and forget using placebos because we know all the adverse effects that placebos can cause. We ask five hundred questions to people in clinical trials: Have you had headaches? Do you sneeze more? Do you go to the toilet more? Have you had stomach ache? Blah blah blah. They ask hundreds of questions. Right? All the, I don't know if they're all the same questions. I don't know. I don't know if they are the same questions. Yeah, but, but by now we should know that when you give somebody a placebo. 3% of them get stomach problems, 5% of them get a headache, 8% of them, I don't know, get depressed. Those, these data should be consistent for placebo use. One of the reasons it isn't consistent is because we don't know what goes into placebos. And this is something most people don't even, are, are blissfully unaware of, is that there is no requirement and no one does tell you what's in a placebo. It's supposed to be an inert pill. But, but it's actually sugar. Well, it's not sugar. It's a completely different thing. So I'm really, I've heard that uh, it was sugar, right? Uh, well, that's what you're told, right? Uh, well, sugar is nasty enough. <laughs> well, it is, but it's not going to cause you to, 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 to say I've got stomach ache and a horrible bitter. You know, I'm not. I'm not so sure. Actually, this is something I've always been a little bit uh, skeptical about. I, I'm, I'm a carnivore. I eat only meat. I haven't had uh, sugar practically in seven years. I eat meat. I drink water. So. 
I'm very, very sensitive to sugar. If I had a tiny, small pill of sugar, which for most people is indetectable because they eat large quantities of sugar every day and like all their food is heavily laced with sugars, that's considered, you know, yeah, you could think of it as a placebo and they think that it doesn't affect them. But I can feel if I had a tiny little amount of sugar, I will feel it and it will get me trigger. It will trigger the sugar uh, addiction cycle where, you know, you get a high and then you get a low and then you want more sugar. And so I wonder if a big part of the reason that drugs do well in trials is that the alternatives, you know, they're being measured against a placebo that is essentially highly addictive and toxic to human beings, which is sugar. Even if we take it in very small doses, it's still helping you get into the sugar addiction mode, making you, it likely contributes, you know, even though it itself might be a tiny little addition to your sugar consumption, it likely helps you eat a little bit more because it adds more sugar to you. I'm going to give you another explanation, which I know to be true. They put Mm -hmm. quite noxious substances into placebos in order to mimic the noxious effects of the medications. (laughs) Interesting. So they they do that. And and in one of the HPV studies, they deliberately put quite horrible stuff into the placebo. And they said that that's so that it didn't interfere with with the, the reporting of the study. We don't know what's in placebos, but where it has been reported and where you are able to find out it sure as hell ain't an inert or a sugar pill. Is, there's all sorts of things going to placebos. We don't know what the effect of placebos is. Moving that to one side, they also have clinical trials. One of the biggest in statins was called the HBS study done by the Oxford Group, where they had a prolonged running period of about four weeks where they gave people medication. And people who couldn't tolerate the medication were removed from the trial. And then at the end of it, they said, we found about in a total number of adverse effects was about 6%. But 35% of people were removed from the study after taking the medication for the first four weeks. And so you said, well, you can have a running period. What does that mean? Does that, so how, if you're going to remove people from the statin part, you then have to remove the same number of people from the placebo part. So anyone in the statin side that was getting adverse effects was just removed from the study. Yeah. So the games that are played are quite extraordinary. I mean, I know from my... I mean, it amuses me sometimes. I'm not a great fan of a newspaper called the Daily Mail, which is quite um, has some quite astonishing stuff in it sometimes. But whenever they do a study on statins, what you get is about a thousand people saying, "Well, I took a statin and I got terrible pain, and when I stopped taking it, the pain went away." And what these people are saying is basically, "Well, you don't, you didn't actually have that pain. You just thought you had pain, um, and that's just nonsense." I mean, I've seen people. I remember seeing one lady. Well, a couple of they say anecdotes are are data, in my opinion. We had a lady in, in a unit which is looking after elderly, unwell people. Normally, you'd fallen and broken a hip or something. And this woman was about to have what they call lasting power of attorney, which means she no longer had capacity. She couldn't, her brain wasn't functioning properly. She was essentially decided it was she was demented and could hardly move. And we took the statin off this lady. And two weeks later, she was bright as a button and walked out of the unit unaided, such that people was like, what happened? I saw a patient, uh, I'll just give you a comment. I've seen quite a few patients with rhabdomyolysis, which is only supposed to happen in one in a million cases. Doses of a lady who was going to have a laparotomy due to extreme abdominal pain and they couldn't find a reason for it. But they postponed it. I told her to stop taking the statin and two weeks later, the pain had completely gone. And they're saying, well, she just imagined this pain. It's like, it, you know, reality is, that they call they don't some people have no adverse effects. I absolutely agree with that. 
but an awful lot of people do. And you have to ask why? Why only statin? Why have they put so much effort into proving that statins cause no adverse effects? Why have they not done this with all these other drugs? Why statin? Why is this complete focus? And to quote Shakespeare, you know, I fear thou protesteth too much. What is going on here? Why are they utterly determined to crush any possibility of anyone saying that any statin has ever had an adverse effect? There's a lady called Beatrice Gollum who does research into adverse effects in California. And she looked at uh, what we call Lou Gehrig's disease or amyotrophic lateral sclerosis and found two of the statins, the increased risk of Lou Gehrig's disease, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, which is a terrible disease, increased 50-fold statins. In one case, 125-fold. It's not a very common disease, so most doctors are never going to see this. No one, as far as I know, has contradicted these, these findings, but, you know, there they are. Probably the single most horrible disease you can get, I think, and there we are, the increase with 50%, 50 times, not 50%, 50-fold. You're 50 times more likely to get amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. Um, and potentially, anyway, the, the, the list goes on and on. But, I mean, you are... Um, you're shouted down. It's 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 not something that anyone will will go on. I, and then again, the research. One of the clinical papers that first promoted this nocebo effect very strongly. When you track it down, it was actually uh, it was actually funded entirely by by the pharmaceutical industry. Although you can't find that unless you look very hard. Yeah, I mean, just the entire notion that I think it's an amazing bait and switch that the, the entire idea behind science as being, you know, something good was an advertisement. You know, it was a marketing campaign done on the idea that, you know, all of humanity until now would just listen to the priest. All of humanity was all about some guy was a priest and you just go to them and they tell you what to do as the priest and the king and you were their serf. Well, we, now we have the enlightenment, now we have science, now we have the uh, age of reason, and we don't listen to priests anymore. We do things with the scientific method. So we do experiments. So, uh, you know, anybody can say this thing works or that thing is, doesn't work. You just need to carry out an experiment and show it and illustrate it. Well, and it sounds really wonderful. And this is what they teach us in school. And this is how we all get into, you know, this kind of a massively appreciative state of mind where we think science is the savior. But then you dig a little bit under the surface and realize that yeah, you're still going with a priest. I mean, it's just instead of the priest saying, I spoke to God or, you know, the ghosts came to me and told me that you should do this. The priest is going into a room and telling you, I carried out the experiment and here's the result. Well, that's not the same thing as carrying out an experiment. That's the same thing as listening to a priest. Now, if he got it because he spoke to God or because he carried out an experiment, it's still the same thing. It's, you're still having to go by his word. And this is where we find ourselves. At this point, pharmaceutical companies, they report the data from their studies, but they report the data. You can't look at it. And in my mind, I mean, this has been normalized, but really, why shouldn't it be the case that all data of all these trials should be out there in the public. I mean, I, why shouldn't it be possible for people to look at the data case by case? Why wouldn't it be possible for researchers to replicate the case, to go and call the people who took the study? You know, these are the 300 people that were in the control group. These are the 300 people that were in the group. Let's follow up with them. And anybody can find them and 
contact them and follow up with them. You know, if the data was out there in the open, available for everybody, I think it would be a very, very different world. And I think there is an enormous scope for making the data much more transparent, but there's an enormous amount of effort that goes into making sure that that, 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 that does not happen. And I think that's extremely telling. I've reached the conclusion sort of reluctantly, like the medical research, what do we call it, world, is bust. I'm not quite sure when it went bust, but I think it is. It's bust to a degree that I don't know what percentage of data has to be fully reliable or, or has to be unreliable before you don't believe you can no longer believe the, the data. Um, but you have to be very careful because even if it's 5% is wrong, you can still go horribly wrong at that point. I really I kind of despair at it that, that we are in this situation. Uh, I feel it's a bit, it's, it's almost gone beyond. Uh, part of the problem is that you can't get a politician interested in this at all. There is no politician who's remotely interested in it. It's almost like it's too big a thing or, or they're just not going to look at it. I mean, I, I did note that European agencies were asked to look at the, the formulation of, of, I think it was the Moderna and Pfizer RNA jabs to look at, well, did they actually contain what they said that they contained? Did they contain mRNA that would code for a spike protein? How much of that was, was intact within these virus, within these vaccines? And, and, and they couldn't, they weren't told they were, they have those data are not made available. And you think, well, if you can't even get data on good manufacturing practice, in other words, you know, these RNA vaccines are very complex things to produce, one would imagine. They sit in a thing called the liposome, which is a little, and then, then, the, then, then the mRNA has to sit within this. Manufacturing those must be very complicated, I would have thought. And then storing them, freezing, and then thawing them out, and then injecting them. You know, how much of this stuff is actually going into people as advertised on the tin well that's been redacted and the authorities can't even see it so if you say well we can't even find out because i was at a conference a few years ago um looking at looking at vaccines and things partly out of interest partly because i was giving a talk and um italian researchers have looked at, at some of the major vaccinations that were given and got hold of them and then tried to analyze them and say well what what, what do we see actually in the vaccines what's there and 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 in no instance could they actually find any of of the the vaccine. There was a lot of clumps of protein. There was other stuff, but there wasn't actually anything that remotely represented what was supposed to be in there. So they went to the EMEA, which is the European um, Medicines Evaluation, and said, well, what's in them? And they said, well, we don't know. You'll have to ask the pharmaceutical industry who make them. And the pharmaceutical industry said, we're not telling you. End of End of the line. So, if we can't even rely on the substance that's supposed to be in these vaccines being in the vaccines, well, maybe it is in the vaccines, but again, why not just say it is? Why not demonstrate it? Why not show it? Um, because, you know, if we're being given a substance that's supposed to do X or supposed to contain X and it contains hardly any X or, or no X at all, then, then clearly there's a major issue going on here. And I would like to know personally is well is it there you know if that's a question if people have looked at it and said we we didn't find it or we found you know that it wasn't working this is a serious issue and um, and again you think the regulatory authorities would be jumping up and down saying we have to see this we have to know 
But, you know, the industry just redacts the information and says you can't see it. How can that possibly be? You know, but it is. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's amazing. And then what's amazing is just how it's been normalized. That Yeah, this is how science is done. And science is open inquiry as long as you're credentialed by the yeah. people that are being queried. Well, I was going, I was writing an article at the moment, which is called, you know, medicine needs a few more plane crashes because you know, a plane falls out of the sky and 300 people die. It's very difficult to hide that. And if another one falls out of the sky and another 300 people die, you know you've got a real problem in your hands. But when things go wrong with medications or potentially, you know, thousands potentially could die. And, you know, if we look at things like Vioxx or whatever, where it's known that it killed thousands, no one noticed that thousands of people died. It was only determined researcher who, who said, well, we must have had thousands have died if this is what's happening. So, you know, you can, you can get thousands of deaths in, in the pharmaceutical world and no one's going to notice. Exactly. That's why, I, I mean, I think we've had an enormous number of plane crashes, but they haven't done a difference. In, in engineering, these things matter. You know, a bridge, bridge falls, engineers can't take stock. But with medicine, it doesn't seem to work that way. And the opioid epidemic is an excellent example because, I mean, at this point, even the most gullible TV viewing pharmaceutical company trusting person knows that the opioid crisis was a complete massive crime and that these companies made billions of dollars and murdered many, many, many people and destroyed so many lives and not even destroyed lives. I mean, you walk around American cities, they've destroyed American cities by basically creating an, an, an underclass of people that cannot be rehabilitated into society because they're addicted to those opioids. And, and it's all started, well, maybe not all, but it has predominantly been driven by prescription drugs. And so this has been revealed. It's been reported in the New York Times. Even CNN has talked about it. Even, you know, even, even the mouthpieces of the pharmaceutical industry will run long pieces about how this has been so horrible. And what has it done to opioid prescriptions? Nothing. The pharmaceutical companies have paid billions in fines, less than the money that they made. So this, this is still a profitable business. You know, even it, it, you just count the amount of money that you have to get, that you have to pay when you get busted as part of the business operating expenses. And it's still a profitable model. You know, you kill tens of thousands of people, you pay money as a fine and you still make a profit. But not only did you, did you, know, you, you just made a profit on the stuff that you did before when you were killing people, you continue. So they're still prescribing opioids and they're still making a lot of money off of opioids. I know. Yeah, what it is, yes, is that <laughs> it's just a tax, isn't it? The killing people tax, yeah, which is, I don't know, but I mean, it is, it's, you know, we don't want to think about it. You become rather despondent if you, if you think about it too hard. I suppose it's, um, I just, uh, I don't know where, where it goes. I don't know where we go with this because, yeah, um, well, it's just about impossible to get anybody triggered enough to want to do it. Well, this is why, I mean, uh, with every episode of this podcast, we end on a positive note of how Bitcoin fixes things. And this is why really we think Bitcoin, I mean, people laugh at us and it sounds crazy and like, don't blame you for laughing, but it's going to start sounding less and less crazy and less and less funny. I think the uh, root cause of a lot of these problems is the fact that money is corrupt. And as, as I was mentioning at the beginning of the discussion, the fact that you have an authority that can print money, whereas everybody else in society has to work for money, just completely tips the balances for everything in the favor of that authority. And so 
the people who are in charge of the money printer dictate medical reality, they dictate scientific reality, they dictate economic reality, because they can impose it by fiat, because they can just continue to throw so much money at things in order to make them in a certain way. And so in my mind, you know, why does the medical uh, establishment get away with all of those things? Why do pharmaceutical companies do all of those things? I don't think you can separate that from the very tight web of control that governments exert on the medical industry. And so a lot of people will tell you, well, what we need is better regulation. What we need is better control over the pharmaceutical companies. But it was regulation and control that got us to where we are. These are not free market industries. These are heavily regulated industries. You can't compete with the pharmaceutical industry. You can't go and say, well, you know what? Their medicine is uh, actually bad for you. Those opioids are not good. Here's a natural product that I'm going to sell as a replacement for this thing that's going to work better. You go to jail if you market anything as being related to a drug, uh, to an illness, unless you have FDA approval. And so the, the that omnipotence is a function of the money printer. That omnipotence did not exist under the gold standard. You did not have this level of government uh, licensing and control of the medical industry under the gold standard because with a gold standard, you can't print gold. And so you can't just impose reality by fiat. If you keep taking people's gold in taxes and spending it on stupid ideas like this, you go bust then it's not a sustainable model. But if you surreptitiously take people's money through inflationary printing, then yeah, you can continue to impose all kinds of strange realities and sciences on them. And the implication, you know, these ideas die very, very hard. So opioids or statins or all kinds of bad theories, they continue to live because with a money printer, they can be kept alive until the money printer breaks. So the the, the, you know, there is a corrective mechanism eventually, which is that once you destroy all of money and all the economic system in a society and you get hyperinflation, then yeah, you can no longer keep enforcing this insanity. But until then, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of people will pay very, very, very heavy price. So I think, um, you know, my case for Bitcoin is that, and the reason, you know, this podcast, even though it's a Bitcoin podcast, we get into all of these topics that might seem extremely unrelated to Bitcoin. I believe they are related to Bitcoin because they are related to money and money printing. And money is one half of every transaction in all society. So if you move from a broken monetary system that is designed for, that is optimized for control and for empowering the people in charge at the expense of the user to a system that is decentralized, which empowers the user and doesn't allow anybody to disenfranchise the user or rob them, that I think can change things drastically. And that's why, that's why I sent you my book and I hope to spend some time thinking about it and uh, we'll win you over to the Bitcoiner side. No, I've been, well, I've been interested in reading it. It's, um, it's, uh, it's not my world, but I think that the control aspect is quite exactly how it works. It's definitely, it seems to be getting more and more and more. So anything that can help to destabilize that those power structures, I think, has to be a good thing because they become too too potent and um, and, and restrictive. But, you know, it's, it is like, you know, I feel a bit like I'm I am being crushed by forces which which, which are uh, beyond my control at the moment. I have no more to say on the matter. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, this is this has been enormously, enormously enormously informative and helpful. I'm very sure that most of our listeners are going to enjoy this a lot and learn a lot from it. I've learned a lot from you over the years, and I want to thank you again for your bravery, 
for speaking out, for putting your name out there and for taking all the arrows that uh, come with, uh, you know, questioning the dogmas of today's ruling scientific religions and all the many assorted cults and their weird primitive beliefs. Thank you so much. I hope we will have you on again to discuss more and more topics. Thank you. I enjoyed the chat. <laughs> and uh, it'd be nice to be nice. I, mean, I, I promise I will finish your book shortly. I've, I've, I've done pretty well. I'm getting there and I will finish. It's very interesting. Thank you very much. All right. Cheers. Thanks a lot. Take care.